tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Morning, welcome along to Tip Today, uh, 1800 The text and WhatsApp is 083 311 Happy Halloween to you, and uh, I hope you have a fantastic uh, day. And if you want to share Halloween stories with us, sure, we'd be delighted to hear from you. And uh, that's 083 311 Coming up on this morning's show, Conor Reedy will bring us some bone-chilling Halloween stories for Hidden Histories. A tip today, listener, with a warning about a get-rich scam. Storm Kiron is on the way. What can we expect where that's concerned? Our financial expert, Francis, will be live with us in studio. Thomas Conway will join us for all the latest uh, global news. Our uh, uh, psychotherapist, uh, Susan, uh, on the importance of couples' relationships. And John Connors on his latest book on Dan Breen and it's an amazing read and I'm really looking forward to that conversation towards the end of the programme. So all of that and much, much more on the way. Let's have a look at what's making headlines today. The Irish Daily Mail and they're talking about that plea deal which could see Jason Corbett's killers walk free. Uh, it's been described as heartbreaking by the late Irishman's uh, family and Molly Martins and her father Tom uh, yesterday accepted a plea deal of voluntary manslaughter over the killing of the Limerick man of uh, to father of two, of course, uh, in uh, 2015, resulting in murder charges against the pair being dropped. So the Irish Times and their lead story, Israeli special forces operating in Gaza last night freed a woman soldier hostage um, uh, who was serving as a lookout on the Gaza border when she was seized by Hamas gunmen who stormed uh, into southern Israel on October 7th, killing 1,400 uh, people. Um, the Irish Times also with that story that uh, hundreds of scans are being reviewed at Letterkenny University Hospital after an internal check found more than one-third of a locum radiologist's work contained errors. Can you believe here we go again? The locum consultant's um, contract was terminated within 10 days as a result of concerns raised about the standard of their work and that's according to CELTA University Healthcare Group which uh, includes uh, the County Donegal Hospital in question to the Irish Examiner and again the Molly Martin uh, story is the lead there. Also on the Examiner today the state pension qualification age should be raised to 75 to account for the fact that life expectancy in Ireland has increased according to a report and the recommendation from the Oireachtas uh, Social Protection Committee would put the cut-off age at five years more than 70, the age recommended by the State Commission on Pensions. Uh, that age, 70, was uh, transposed into the Draft Social Welfare Amendment uh, Bill 2023, uh, considered by the Oireachtas Committee for pre-legislative uh, scrutiny in August and September of this year. And finally, a look at uh, the Indo, and they're telling us that thousands of homeowners and businesses 
could have to uh, abandon their properties in coming decades under national policies to deal with rising sea level and coastal change. And the government says that policies around managed retreat must be developed now instead of waiting for an emergency situation to arise. So that's a peek at what's uh, making headlines in your newspapers today. Do you want to make comment on any of that? 083 311 As I said, today is Halloween. Do you look forward to it every autumn or do you just skip through uh, the holiday. Now, we've had a few messages pop in over the last few days about your Halloween mem- uh, memories, and one of our listeners, Helen, joins me now. Helen, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Happy Halloween to you. And many happy returns to you as well, Helen. Are you a Halloween person, Helen? Do you enjoy it? I enjoy it insofar that it uh, is part of our tradition hmm. just to um, mark Halloween. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the amount of... Um, kind of partying and all that that goes on now and the huge stress even on kids to dress up in special costumes and all mm. of that for Halloween because uh, when I when I was little and I I must be getting old Fran when I'm saying this <laughs> when I was young <laughs> I was living in the country I was living in the countryside in a little village called uh, Bally Neal and there was absolutely no way that we even had heard of trick-or-treating so we just had a small Halloween party at home, myself and my three sisters and my brother. And we had the back and we had apple bobbing and we had uh, the apple hanging from the ceiling and trying to grab yeah, that and yeah. take a bite out of it. And uh, we also had um, the barn rack had the money, the ring, the stick, all of that stuff in it. And at one point, my favourite, one of my favourite memories is I found no, I found a sixpence in the in the barn brack, and uh, my dad then got the brilliant idea. Well, now we'll hide that and see if you can find it, or any of you can find it. So he hid it, and we all went looking for it. I found it, and I thought it's going to be taken off me again. So I popped it in my mouth <gasps> and decided I'd bring it upstairs later on. But of course that wasn't brilliant. You can see where this is going literally. Oh God, Helen! Yeah, yeah go on. Yeah, down the throat. So <gasps> I swallowed it. Stop! You did not. I did, yeah, and uh, I got quite a fright. Now, fessed up, and uh, my parents. Think about it now. Nowadays, you'd rush the child up to the oh, hospital. Oh yeah, yeah. And instead, my dad said, "Oh no, we'll calm you down." He brought me into a friend of his in Carrie, who. Um, did magic on my stomach, and he produced sixpence. I'd love to say it was the same sixpence. It wasn't. (laughs) He just wanted to calm me down, cool me dad down. And then for the next next few days, I had to use the potty because they wanted to make sure that the sixpence had passed. (laughs) I will say that part of the language, but I would say that for me, that was a shit Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. But you're right. Nowadays, we'd absolutely panic and there would be ambulances and all sorts of stuff. But there was no panic, really. No, there wasn't. And, you know, it did what it had to do and out it came. And, you know, I said, and, and, and I didn't get to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, oh, it's that a great was... story. You must have been dining out on that story over the years, weren't you? I, you know, every now and then it pops up <laughs> and I can think, oh, yeah, I remember Back but, in the day. but you know what you said was very interesting. There was no trick or treating. So, should I take from that that that's an Americanism that we? We've... Yes. Yeah. That and the decoration of the houses. We didn't decorate the house for Halloween. 
And when my kids were little, I didn't decorate it. However, now I have a grandson and I put up a few Halloween decorations inside, but there's nothing outside. Mm. Mm. And yet again, that's an Americanism. Mm. Um, and the other one that is an Americanism, but it came from Irish tradition, is the pumpkin. You know, the way it's carved yeah, what, what is the story with, with the pumpkin? Is, is that Irish? Absolutely, except we didn't have it pumpkins. Was a, it so wasn't pumpkins, yeah. I think no, it was a turnip, was it? You're absolutely right. And where it came from was there was um, an Irish blacksmith called John something. Now, he was known as Jack. And uh, he died, and he, this is tradition anyway, he died and at the gates of heaven because he had been a bad person. He was refused admission to heaven. So he was wandering around outside and he knew he'd be in darkness for the eternity. And the devil gave, he asked the devil for light. And the devil gave him a lump of coal and Jack put it into a hollowed out turnip and he carried it around to light his pathway. So the tradition then in Ireland is, was to hollow out a turnip, put in a light or a lump of coal or something to keep it glowing, to keep the devil and Jack away. So that's where it came from. A Jack o' lantern. A Jack o' lantern. There we go. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Isn't that absolutely? I remember the moment you said it to me. I remembered the notion of hollowing, uh, hollowing out the um, turnip, but I didn't realise that that was behind it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's and that's why it's called a Jack o' Jack o' lantern. God, I, lo- I love those stories. I absolutely love them. Do you, do you, would you prefer if we went back to the traditional games and the traditional way of celebrating Halloween? I think it would be brilliant to do it. Now, in a part of the way, unfortunately, and I would, having said it would be great, it did happen when we had a lockdown in, oh God, we had so many of them, was it either 20 or 20, 20 and 21, maybe yeah, both, yeah. and the kids couldn't go out. So they had to make their own parties at home. You know, mm. um, but like having said that, I'm going to be answering the door tonight now to any of the kids who yes. come around with all their costumes and stuff. But even that's changed. When my two were little, trick or treating was beginning to kick off, and they dressed in bin bags and plastic bags. Yes, yes, yes. And when I think about it, like in some ways, like I have photographs taken of a group of them with their plastic bags and their plastic, there's those weird plastic masks. Yeah. And they all looked like serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> they were nearly scarier than what's going around now with a costume that could cost something up to a hundred euro. So here I had the black bin bag and from the roll and the plastic masks on their head. Ah, uh, it's great. Well, with, they probably got more enjoyment out of that as well, Helen. Yeah, you know? I think so. I think so. And like, and they still had their party with all the the Barnbrack being centre centre stage. Yeah. And what did you make of uh, the recent news that uh, Dunn Stores were taking the ring out of the bar and brack because of health and safety and all of that kind of thing? What, what did you make of I that? I think that is, yet again, the minority dictating to the majority. Do you think, yeah? A few, and I will call them snowflakes, thinking, oh, health and safety, health and safety, my backside. <laughs> We've had the flipping stuff and more, yeah. my famous sixpence, in the, the bar and brack for such a long time and then they want to take it out because of health and safety you know the stuff especially yeah. the ring is in the barn break. so watch out for it I did that with my kids I'd cut the barn break. I'd see where, I'd poke around a little bit see where the ring was I'd take the ring out mm-hmm. and then once they get they get the slice of barn break, I'd slip it under one of the slices 
Right, so you'd, you'd be careful with it, but it would be still part of the tradition, I guess, Helen. Yeah, exactly. We can't yeah. abdicate all responsibility for our personal safety and blame every and any company. You know, you see things like on a packet of food that has to be heated. Warning, this food would be hot when heated. <laughs> but that had to be done because mm-hmm. some clown burnt herself badly when she was eating something that was hot and said there wasn't a warning on it. Yeah, it's incredible. There, there's um, there's a warning on on a car battery now. Do not do not consume the the acid. Like in, in, in <laughs> really, yeah, yeah. People might prefer to have some other acid instead, huh? Like, like really, what yeah. what's going on out there? Is it is it kind of a nanny state on everything, or are people just afraid of litigation and being sued and all of that? Is that? I is think that it's a bit it? of column A and a bit of column B. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, you know, and it buys into this whole blame thing. I have no responsibility for myself. Everybody has to watch out for me and look after me. And oh, if anything goes wrong, it's the company's fault. It's whatever's fault, you know. Rather than saying, you know, just, just a bit of cop on. Yeah. Like, who the heck would want to to try and drink the fluid from the battery, or you know, or, or think that something that's heated won't be won't be harsh. And, and the same thing with the barn brick. A ring is a choking hazard. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but it, but it is. But watch out for it. You, it's not as if it's in the barn brick and you cut in and not know it's going to be there. Yeah, it's, it seems a bit extreme, all right. That's uh, that's uh, for sure. Do you do you have do you see anything? And it's something we were discussing in the office uh, earlier on as well. That some people who might be religious might be offended by some of the. Uh, demonic um, interpretations of uh, Halloween as well with some of these um, as you say the figures that are outside of houses now they're figures of demons and stuff and satanic figures and all of that does that concern you at all? Not a bit because if anything it is actually very close to what Halloween is about it's Halloween night it's when the veil of day and night Mm. evil and goodness life and death is wears very, very thin mm. and easy can come through. And, oh, I nearly feel the shivers coming down my back when I think of that because that's why I love Halloween. It's because I can feel that the spirits of our ancestors are dancing around me. I can feel that everything that's good and every possibility that can be evil is is all so very, very close, just that thin, you, you, thin you describe that You describe that so well indeed. Are you genuine about that, Helen? You feel oh, that? Absolutely, wow. yes. I mean, not many people know this, but I'm no, the whole the whole witch thing is an Americanism. Mm. But, like, and I'm a white witch, so I find Halloween when they have a go at the witches, I'm thinking, ah, come on now. <laughs> We're not all bad. And you're a yes. white witch, Helen. I'm a white witch. And coincidentally, because the cat found us, I actually have a black cat called Julius Caesar. And the cat found you? The cat found me. We rescued him. My God almighty. Isn't that yeah, amazing? Sure. Yeah. And, and you, you'd you go along with that notion that we're very close to the the other world um, on Halloween. You You really believe that? I absolutely believe that, yes. Yeah. Um, and I can nearly feel it there, you know. It's, it's, it's actually it's a lovely feeling because evil can only thrive if we fail to recognise it yeah. and yeah. if we can fail to head it off by doing good stuff. Because we don't have to just be sitting there and go, oh, it's going to happen. It can 
be headed off to some degree. Have you ever encountered um, another worldly experience, shall I say, or a ghost or a demon? Have you ever encountered something like that? Yeah, I have on many occasions. Have but you? One of the oddest ones was this. Now, and I absolutely, I let me counter this. I absolutely did not know this person had died. Right? Yeah. I was in hospital. I had. I had had a major hysterectomy. I had cancer. And when I came around, now they hadn't given me full injection, full anaesthetic because I was so ill, I had an epidural. Now yeah. that's kind of pertinent to what I'm about to say. Yes. So I was there in the recovery ward anyway, and I had said I did not want any visitors whatsoever except Bobby to come in to me. That was it. Nobody. And I woke, I kind of half awake, half asleep, and I woke up and here was my friend sitting alongside me, and I won't give her name because her family would know, you know, and yeah, I wouldn't want sure, to hurt them. Of course. But I could see her, she was holding my hand, and I said, What are you doing here? And she said, uh, I, I just came to see you and to tell you we're not ready for you yet. And I said, Well, I'm not ready for anyone. And she stayed there for a while, but I was still thinking all the time, why aren't the nurses doing something? Mm. So anyway, the next day when I was back in my own room, in my own ward, I was saying to Bobby, he said, do you know she came to see me? And I don't know why she was left again. He said, oh, um, she died yesterday morning. This was in the afternoon when she came to see me. Oh, my God. And I've been asked, were you not terrified of that? And I said, no, it was the most... It, and two things. For me, she had told me we're not ready for you yet, so I knew I was going to survive. And then the other thing, it was this. It said that when a person dies, they often come back and visit somebody close to the family, but not the family member, to let them know that they've passed over safely. That's that's uh, that's incredible. I, I, I know that if, if I came across... A ghost or or something. I I would pass away with with the heart attack. I I'd be very scared of that now, Helen. I have to say. You know, and all you need to do is say hello, because sometimes I think these spirits just want to be recognised. Because there's a place, um, Dungarvan Castle, definitely yeah. haunted. And I was there with my sister and my sister, my daughter Karen, and the doors were closed. And the next thing is the door banged open. We're going, what the heck? And um. We could feel the place went from being warm to stone cold. And I said, well, whoever the heck you are, would you ever go and close that door again, please? please? It's just not on. And the door closed. Good God. And we discovered afterwards that that room was haunted. So, But Helen, is this because you're one of these people that have a particular, I don't know how to describe it, but a particular relationship with the other world, if you know what I mean? Somebody I think has... it may, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, because I, I recognise there is another world that I wouldn't... I have never prescribed to the thing that when you die, you're dead, that's it. I've, been, I've always... It's funny, even when I was as little as three years old, I know I believed in souls travelling on and going somewhere else. Um, when I was... Through, when I was... I was, yes, three years old, my brother died. And he, was, he was only a few months old. And a few months... About eight months later... My other brother, my other brother was born, Paul, and I looked at him and I remember thinking, I've been forgiven. For some reason, I blamed myself for his death. I've been forgiven. This is his soul back in Paul's body. My God! And you, you, and do you still believe that, Helen? Yes, I believe that as such that we've all been here before. 
and I believe that the souls come back to learn lessons until that soul has learned every lesson in life it needs to mm. learn. That's very Buddhist. That's Buddhist to that thing, yeah. isn't You it? see, I have a mixture of, we'll call it, of thinkings because I was, I was reared to question and to think. Mm. Um, my father had written a book about the Brehan Laws, which opened my mind to so many things. Yes, yeah. That's a fascinating study, yes. in fact. It was the it? Book yeah. of Irish Curses. Yeah. Um, so he had written, yeah, Sex and Marriage in Early Ireland. These two books really blew my mind because it uh, it centred so much on the traditions in Ireland. Yes. And what was and what could be. And yet again, the complete... the. The respect that we need to pay for those who are living and those who have passed on and know that those who have passed on are often around us and that they are never truly dead until we have forgotten them. Well, Helen, when we started our conversation, I thought we were going to chat about Snapapple or something like that. <laughs> but it certainly has, it's broadened out into the most fascinating conversation altogether. All, all Helen, it was lovely to talk to you today. And you, to you, you, you look after yourself and uh, the cat and the family and all of that. And, and happy Halloween to you, Helen. And you too. And mind out who's behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it to me, Helen. Don't do it to me. Bye-bye, though. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's, that's Helen, white witch, by her own admission there, chatting to us on this Halloween. What do you make of that? Uh, uh, 83 311 Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Wet conditions and spot flooding expected today with parts of Ireland still under weather warnings. There comes as we prepare for more severe weather conditions with the arrival of storm Kiron uh, tomorrow which will bring more heavy rain I presume but let's find out what the story is because Cahal Nolan joins me now from Ireland's Weather Channel. Cahal good morning to you. A very good morning friend. And thanks for your time this morning because I know you're extremely busy. Um, what can we expect from storm Kiron particularly if we can be a little parochial where Tipperary is concerned Cahal? Absolutely I suppose it's a difficult system to pin down would be the first thing worth mentioning about Storm Kieran. It still is about the weak depression in the Atlantic. It's expected to pick up in intensity over the course of the next 24 to 36 hours. But looking at the latest guidance, I think the worst of the system itself is likely to stay well to the south of Ireland. Based on its latest track, it is going a little bit farther south than originally anticipated mm. by many forecasters, which is good news. That will keep most of the, I suppose, most of the heaviest of the rain away from Tipperary specifically. It may still lead to a glancing blow across maybe parts of Kerry, Cork, Waterford, Wexford. But at present, it looks as though the worst of the conditions will now pass to the south of the county. There will still be some strong winds at times, so strong easterly, northeasterly winds, maybe gusting up a size maybe 80, 90 kilometres per hour in some parts. But again, I think based off the latest guidance that we're seeing and the general trend from the chart at present is that the worst of the conditions will avoid this part of the world. Is Kieran related in any way to what's happening in the north of Ireland at the moment, in fact, uh, Cahill, with the amber rain warning up there in Antrim, I think Armand down as well? 
It's not. They're two separate systems. So although obviously conditions are very similar in terms of the quantities of rainfall expected from these various systems, they're not related per se. They are separate low pressures. The first one that brought excessive rain overnight into parts of even parts of Blaus and the Cooley Peninsula, and then up through parts of down the Moan Mountains in particular, there was up to maybe 50 to 70 millimetres of rain falling there which did lead to some destruction I've just recently seen. Mm. There's a couple of bridges washed away in that particular area. But um, that they're very much separate systems. Storm Kieran itself is only a weak area of low pressure at the moment, but as it tracks east across the Atlantic, it will get spun up basically by the jet stream as it approaches both Ireland and the UK and northern France. And at the moment, it looks like it's the southern half of the UK and certainly parts of Brittany into northern France that will experience the worst of Storm Kieran. Uh, today, of course, the last day of uh, October. It's been one hell of a month where rainfall uh, is concerned. It certainly has excessive levels of rainfall recorded throughout the country, especially so across the southern half of the country. We've obviously seen significant flooding events, and obviously, particularly thinking back to the flooding events in Middleton and mm. parts of Wexford mm. as well. These locations saw up to a month's worth of rainfall within the space of 24 hours. And and beyond that, of course, it was very wet month in general. Uh, precipitation levels in many parts coming in at about 200, 250% of what we typically would see at this time of year. So it really has been exceptional in terms of the quantity of rainfall that we've seen. I suppose, looking ahead a little bit further, it doesn't really appear as though we're going to see a great settling of conditions over the next um, over the next couple of weeks. It's very interesting indeed. Cahal, we appreciate your time this morning and thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you and good morning to you. That's uh, Cahal Nolan there from Ireland's Weather Channel, 1800 938 007. Um, Fran, I wonder, are these people we entrust our health to, are they qualified or are their credentials checked properly and uh, what way are they checked? Now, that's making reference to uh, something that I brought up when we were looking at uh, the papers where um, there's issues again in a Donegal uh, hospital that hundreds of scans there are being reviewed at uh, Letterkenny University Hospital after an internal check found that more than one-third of a locum radiologist's work contained errors there. So, yeah, you'd wonder, all right, wouldn't you? Um, are credentials checked? Because, as you say, these people... Um, are, well, I mean, what they're doing is, is extremely important. They're looking after our welfare and our health and all of that. Fran, I wonder, are these people, yeah, that's the same thing. Halloween isn't an Americanism, Fran. It's called excellent marketing, says one of our listeners. Somebody else saying, Fran, it's all about getting free money. Put a claim in straight away. That lady is absolutely right, says uh, Anne-Marie. And again, that's making reference to part of my conversation, indeed, uh, with Helen, where we were talking about nanny states and all of that. Loved Halloween as a child, Fran, and uh, when my boys were young in particular. That comes in from Joe Noble this morning as well. Let's take a break. We're back with more in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Oh my, oh my. Um, I was speaking to Helen and uh, she was talking about all sorts of sort of ghostly things and ghostly happenings towards the end of our, our conversation. Just a few moments ago, while I was speaking to you last, in fact, all the all the screens here, this, this, this is absolutely true, all the screens here in front of me all went blank. 
everything, including our CCTV screen up on the wall in front of me. Everything just kind of shut down as I was talking. So just in case I sounded a little sort of demented <laughs> earlier on, that's the reason for it. Um, I was talking to Ellie about it. There's, there's no reason for that to have happened. We don't we don't know what the hell went went on there. But anyway, and uh, speaking of all things ghostly, let's dive headfirst into the enigmatic tales of Tipperary's past in a spooky Halloween episode of Tipperary's Hidden History. We have a special treat for you right now because Dr. Connor Reedy unearthed some of the most bone-chilling stories that Tipperary has ever whispered into the darkest of nights. So get ready to be transported into the terrifying world of the supernatural as we peel back the layers of Scary Tipperary. This Halloween day casts an eerie glow over our beloved county. We invite you to gather round the radio as we delve into the shadowy annals of our history. Prepare yourselves, for Tipperary's hidden history is about to reveal scary Tipperary and the bone-chilling tales and forgotten legends that have haunted our land for centuries. From ghostly apparitions that still wander the moonlit streets to the ominous secrets buried deep beneath our picturesque landscapes, This Halloween special promises to send shivers down your spine. So lock your doors, draw the curtains, and get ready for an unforgettable journey into the unknown. The supernatural past of Tipperary awaits, and it's not for the faint of heart. In a quiet hamlet near Thurlis, a farmer met an untimely end, leaving behind a young widow. Bereft of companionship, she lived alone in her grief, her world cloaked in darkness. Then, just three months after her husband's sombre funeral, an eerie event unfolded that would send shivers down anyone's spine. It was a cold, moonless night when the widow's solitude was shattered by a thunderous knocking at her door. Her heart raced as she hesitantly inched toward the entrance. With a trembling hand, she turned the doorknob and there in the pallid moonlight stood a figure swathed in a tattered shroud. A chilling sensation crept over her as she gazed upon this spectral apparition. In a solemn, almost ghostly voice, the shrouded figure queried, Do you recognize me? The widow, trembling with fear, replied in the negative. The ghostly presence revealed itself as her late husband and spoke of a curious request. He required ten pounds to secure his passage into the hallowed gates of heaven. Terror-stricken, the widow confessed that she did not have the money, but she pledged to gather the sum if he would return the following night. The apparition accepted her promise and, with an otherworldly air, retreated into the inky shadows, leaving the widow in a state of agonizing bewilderment. 
As the first light of dawn pierced the sky, the widow confessed in her closest confidants, hoping they might offer her guidance or aid. Their counsel, however, was unexpected. She must seek help from the constabulary. She pondered their advice, and when night fell again, she took a leap of faith. The apparition reappeared at the appointed hour, demanding his spectral toll. The widow dutifully handed him the ten pounds in hushed tones. In a melancholy murmur, the shrouded figure intoned, Now I depart this earthly realm to ascend to the heavens. But fate had a different plan. As the spectral figure turned to leave, a stern-faced sergeant and a constable of the Royal Irish Constabulary materialised from the shadows. They intercepted him, questioning his unearthly nature. Without further ado, they escorted the apparition to the barracks, where he would spend the rest of the night in a cold cell. Perhaps in his solitude, the apparition contemplated the unexpected challenges of haunting. In the enchanting countryside just outside Tipperary town, a young woman of some wealth and standing shared a story passed down by a sister to a former Dean of Cashel. This intriguing tale begins with an elderly lady, the sister of the Dean, who found herself spending time with a dear friend in a cosy home nestled in the Dublin suburbs. Before their charming dwelling, a quaint garden adorned the front, bisected by a brief gravel path that led to a gate granting access to the bustling street beyond. Engaged in their needlework one fine day, the two ladies were drawn away from their tasks by the sound of a gate's creaking hinges. Glancing out the window, their eyes fell upon the approach of an elderly gentleman well known to them. He trod the gravel path with purpose, nearing the front door. Overjoyed by the unexpected visit, they exchanged delighted exclamations. Oh, how kind of him to come and see us. Anticipating his entrance, they waited in the sitting room, eager for the conversation that would follow. However, minutes passed and the guest did not make his way to the sitting room. Perplexed, one of the ladies rang the servant's bell, summoning the maid. With a furrowed brow, she inquired, Have you not let Mr. So-and-so inside? He's been out at the door for quite some time. The maid, complying with the request, hurried to the front hall, only to return with a perplexed expression. She reported that, to her surprise, there was no one to be found outside the door. The following day, the truth of this mysterious encounter unfurled, casting a spectral pallor over the tale. They learned that the elderly gentleman, whom they had seen approaching their door with such vivid clarity, had passed away at precisely the same hour that they had glimpsed him on the gravel path. It was a haunting encounter, a visitation from the beyond that defied the boundaries of life and death, leaving the two ladies to ponder the ethereal mysteries that linger in the realm of the unknown. Ghostly sightings around graveyards are hardly surprising. Did you know that the old church graveyard in Ballangarry, south of Thurlis, is listed as one of Tipperary's leading paranormal sites. Two brothers, aged eight and ten years old, noticed a man peering over the wall of this graveyard. His head and shoulders were visible, and the figure wore a white shirt with dark glasses 
and had curly hair. The man also looked like he had been crying and ignored the children when they spoke to him. The children told their father and he pointed out that the wall was eight feet high. Upon hearing the description of the figure, the father recognised it as being a friend of his who had died four years earlier. Before Steven Spielberg's cinematic magic, the mysterious poltergeist was already stirring up paranormal pandemonium within the walls of our homes and in our public spaces. Take, for example, a quaint shop on Clonmel's O'Connell Street, a stage for a spine-tingling encounter with these spectral troublemakers back in 1906. The ghostly capers began innocently enough, with strange voices and eerie sounds echoing through the building's chambers. But the real spectacle was yet to come. Over several hair-raising weeks, the troublemakers unleashed their spectral chaos. Screams, laughter, and otherworldly bedlam filled the air. Bedclothes took flight, fluttering through windows, while furniture succumbed to ghostly pranks, tumbling over in disarray. Constables and curious onlookers descended upon the scene, but the culprits remained elusive, their identities shrouded in mystery. Just as suddenly as it began, the supernatural spectacle came to an abrupt halt, leaving behind a legacy of eerie enigma that continues to haunt the annals of history. For over five centuries, the haunting spectre of Edmund Roe O'Kennedy has loomed over the ruins of Anna Castle, nestled in the shadows of North Tipperary, near Lusca Bay. In the turbulent times of the 16th century, Edmund's life was brutally snuffed out by his ruthless enemies, leaving behind a legacy steeped in enigma. Edmund met his gruesome fate before he could whisper a word to anyone about the whereabouts of his concealed treasure, a secret he carried with him to the grave. It was a mystery that not even death could bury. Since his untimely demise, Edmund's malevolent shade has wandered the desolate grounds of Anna Castle, his visage twisted into a grotesque death mask, his once regal countenance marred by a gory, gaping wound at his throat, still seeping with blood, now congealed into a horrifying tableau of agony. Visitors, unsuspecting of the grim history that clings to these time-worn stones, have reported eerie encounters. They've glimpsed Edmund's tortured soul, his anguished moans echoing through the centuries, as he remains unrelenting in his quest to protect his hidden treasure from prying eyes, even in death. The year 1975 bore witness to a spine-chilling encounter when an intrepid archaeology student, intent on uncovering the secrets buried within Anna Castle, was abruptly startled from his excavation. From the depths of the ruin, a haunting gasp emanated, drawing his attention. And there, in the dim light of the castle's forgotten halls, he came face to face with the ghastly apparition of Edmund Roe O'Kennedy. In death, as in life, Edmund Roe O'Kennedy is unwavering in his resolve. His restless spirit remains the sentinel of the hidden treasure he safeguarded for over half a millennium, an enduring testament to the mysteries that lie within the haunted ruins of Anna Castle.
About two miles from Ross Grey was the beautiful church ruin of Inishnamo, or as it's also known, Mona Hincha, the bog of the island. From the style of its architecture, it was built in the 11th century. The church was the only remnant of a great and well-known monastery, founded in the 8th century by St. Hilary, the scribe and anchorite. After Hilary's death, the establishment continued to flourish for many centuries, until it was suppressed in the reign of Elizabeth I. The removal of the monks did not at all lessen the people's veneration for the island, which continued for generations to be a place of pilgrimage. About 300 years ago, the owner drained the lake, forbade all pilgrimages and burials, destroyed the tombs, and had a circular fence built around the church. According to tradition, no woman and no female animal could enter the island. Moreover, no one who was guilty of any great sin could die on it. However so long he was kept there in his mortal illness, he still lived on. But as soon as he was removed, he died at once. If, by chance, an unrepentant sinner who had died elsewhere was brought there to be buried, it always turned out a failure, for owing to one difficulty or another, the people were never able to bury them in any part of the sacred island, and eventually had to bring the body to be buried elsewhere. A different account of this place reports that two islands existed. On one island was the church which became a place of pilgrimage, while on the other one stood a chapel, which was served by a few unmarried men known as Kuldis. On the larger island, no woman could land without dropping dead as soon as she touched the shore. The same thing happened to female animals. This was often proved because whenever a female dog, cat or other animal touched the island, they dropped dead. As we stand on the precipice of Anishinaabe's history, the ghosts of the past whisper secrets we may never fully comprehend. These tales, a curious blend of devotion and dread, remind us that the secrets buried beneath ancient stones are a treasure trove of untold chills and mysteries waiting to be rediscovered by those with the courage to explore the haunted echoes of time. As the witching hour draws ever closer and the echoes of these eerie tales linger in our subconscious, I must bid you farewell. But remember, the stories of Scary Tipperary are etched into our history, waiting to be uncovered once more. As the eerie melodies of our tales of terror fade into the night, remember this. The shadows may conceal more than you dare imagine, and the spirits of Tipperary's haunted lore may yet have their say once more. Keep a wary eye out, for the darkness is alive, and the stories of the supernatural in this land are far from finished. Until we cross paths again, stay vigilant and embrace the sinister side of All Hallows' Eve. Happy Halloween, dear listeners. And may your nightmares be brimming with unforgettable, hair-raising frights that'll make your very soul shiver with delicious terror. Tipperary's answer to Vincent Price there, the scary Dr. Connor Reedy with a very bloody version of Tipperary's hidden history. Um, really, I really enjoyed that. Thanks very much indeed, Connor. 83 311 Now, speaking of scary, the zombie walk, a major highlight of the Halloween celebrations in Clonmel will be held in the town tonight. And to tell me more, I'm glad to be joined now by the Mayor of Clonmel, Richie Malloy. Good morning to you, Richie. 
Good morning to your friend. And good to talk and to you today. What, are, are you are you suitably uh, scared after I'm, that from I'm, Conor I'm Reedy? After, <laughs> after listening to Conor there now, I'm going back under the... the <laughs> <laughs> the quilt and we'll be staying there for the day but just to wish you a happy Halloween and happy Halloween to you as well what what can we expect in Clonmel well, this evening absolutely Richard? No. And Connor has said that the witching hour is nearly here yeah. and no more so than in Clonmel so at 6 o'clock this evening we have the famous zombie walk taking place there in the it's going to start there at the, you know, the, the plaza there where the old kick of army barracks yes. used to be and it promises now to be a great night, really. And the committee are telling me that um, whether just, whatever the weather is, they're going to proceed on with it. Because this year of the walk, I suppose it's short enough. It's going to start in the plaza and walk down as far as the Greyhound Stadium. They're just around the... Um, do you know about the Greyhound Stadium? Of course, yes. Yeah. Into, the, into the Shore Island uh, car park and that. There'll be plenty, plenty car parking there for people if they want to park in... Sure, either. But this is an event that's been run this year by the Tipperary County Council, but it never fails to attract, you know, young and old, really, I suppose, a lot of parents mm. bring along their small children. And we're encouraging everybody to dress up as much as they can. And I'm being persuaded myself to <laughs> do something. <laughs> so I just have to say to be a surprise on the night. It's a lovely time of the year. Yeah. I think when my own children were small, it was always great with trick and treating around the estates and so on. And it's nice that that tradition, you know, it, isn't kept. it just? Yeah, I, I believe a lot of organisations have come together to make this such a success, Richard. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, because like I said, Tipperary County Council are leading it there. My own, yeah. and Liz, Liz McGrath in the council is very much involved in it, and, and my own brother, actually, Simon. Malay is involved in it as mm. well. But, and you have that at six o'clock. You'll have storytelling and so on then with the Clamel Theatre Guild are coming on board as well. So that'll mm. be a great night of ghostly stories and spooks and all the rest of it. Mm. And all we can do is hope that the weather stays as nice as it is. Well, I think this morning, hopefully. looking out the foggy morning here in Clamel, you know, it has that kind of spooky feel about it already. Well, earlier on I was speaking to Helen about ghost stories and the like and all the screens went off on me here and stuff which scared the you-know-what out of me, Richie. So I'm, 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 not sure, I'm not sure what to expect from the rest of the programme. Yeah, it's um, a very... It's, it's, yeah. strange, it's a strange time of the year, for sure. Isn't it just... Uh, you have some live music, I think, tonight with my friend Mad we Patsy. Have, we the, have. We have the Mad, Mad yeah. Patsy. is coming yeah. on board. And he's always great. Great. Uh, as you spark about Mad Patsy, so he's going to provide music and there's a couple of other groups coming along as well. So I'd encourage the listeners this morning now, if you want to kind of a night out with your youngsters, come on down to the, the plaza and be there for six o'clock. Very and I'd say it'll be a lovely, a lovely night's entertainment. Very good indeed. Well, we wish you well and everybody involved in that, Richie, and uh, have a spooky day. And thanks so much for talking to us this morning, Richie. Not at Thank all. You. Happy Halloween to all your listeners. Thank good you. Bye-bye to you now. That's the Mayor of Clanmel, Councillor Richie Malloy, speaking to us uh, there about the zombie walk. Big, big highlight indeed of the Halloween celebrations happening um, about six o'clock tonight from the plaza in Clanmel. My good friend Joe Noble was on to say when I was a child, Fran, many moons ago, the snap apple games, uh, etc. And my mum used to frighten the, sh- you know what, out of us uh, with ghost stories uh, after the games around our open fire. And uh, in later years, when my boys were young, I always had Halloween parties, bonfires, the lots. And one year, two members of the Moikarki Pipe Band 
came up to open up the party. Such great memories. I wonder were they the Cooney lads by, by, by any chance because I know they certainly would have been into a bit of crack. But thanks for that, Joe, and a happy Halloween to you as well. Somebody, um, interesting text from a listener to say, hard to compare, Fran, the peace and quiet of the Pope's Mass on Sunday and at the same time we have the war in Gaza blazing and God help those people being killed and uh, injured, of course, yeah, and not only in Gaza, but there's still war going on uh, in Ukraine as well. And so I, I take your point there indeed. OK, lots more coming into us about Halloween and I will get back to it in just a little while. But let me leave you with one because it says here, I'm from Scotland, Fran, and I'm in my 60s. We used to go goising. I hope I have the right pronunciation of that. Goising. And so did my parents when they were children. And the story is you'd go around the neighbours uh, dressed up in old clothing, usually belonging to the parents and our faces would be hidden behind masks or coal and makeup and most houses would have made a tablet which was a type of fudge we carved out suede turnips for lanterns we had to sing or say a poem or tell a joke before we'd get either the tablet or other treats isn't that amazing now it was called guising g-u-i-s-i-n-g i hadn't heard about that before but thank you for sharing that uh, with us news and information is coming up Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Financial advice with FOH Financial Limited. Tried, trusted and experienced advice. See foh.ie. FOH Financial Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. And Francis O'Hanlon is with me in studio. Good morning to you, Francis. Hi, Fran. Happy Halloween. And yeah, all, same to you. All of that. Are you a Halloween person? <laughs> no, I'm not. You look, it's, <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> kind of much to do about nothing. Or look, it's nice to see the kids. And I, I naively, I was looking at monkey nuts and apples and saying, oh, we'll get these for trick or treat. Uh, no, <laughs> and my, not anymore. My were laughing at me saying, uh, no, they don't want those. <laughs> <laughs> something something more substantial yeah. and more expensive, I would Absolutely, imagine, as well. Yeah. Uh, today, I think we're going to feature a lot of questions uh, that have been coming into us, Francis. So that's that's fair to say, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, so a lot of social welfare type. Uh, Absolutely. Do, do you want to put in your usual... Yeah, look, I'm going to say this. I am not an expert in social welfare, but I'm, I'm quickly becoming one <laughs> <laughs> as I'm looking at these. But look, I have no problem commenting on these because obviously sometimes they crisscross into the area pensions, yeah. be it state pension or whatever it be. So a lot of these are kind of related to that, but some are not so. But where I can't answer it, I'm going to say look, I sure. don't know. But, you know, don't forget, Department of Social Welfare are quite helpful in TRIO. They'll, they'll help you with these. But look, let's let's do what we can for people, I think, Fran, well, as we normally try. Of course, try. of course. Let's have a look. The first one is, can you get half-rate carers on invalidity pensions? So, this was a simple one. Yes is the short answer, but I suppose always check. Uh, remember the reason that you're, you know, you got the invalidity pension in 
uh, the first place. So I would say, again, this is one worth checking out. So just to, to, to underpin this and, and underline it, you can get half-rate cares allowance with the following social welfare payments. And I went in to check this and it said invalidity pension and invalidity pension increase for a qualified adult. Um, but maybe it might be easier for me to outline the payments where you cannot get half yes, yes. carers. Yeah. So you cannot get half rate carers allowance with the following social welfare payments, basic supplementary allowance, job seekers, benefit for people who retired 65, job seekers allowance, working family payment, back to education, carers benefit or job seekers transitional payment. But you can get half rate carers allowance um, with the invalidity pension. But I pre- presume if the condition that you have that got you the invalidity pension That's in the first place... That's what I'm place, kind of saying here. Yeah, it, it would depend on whether or not that would impede exactly. you being a proper carer. So that's why I was saying you need to remember the reason that you got the invalidity pension. Like if, you know, and again, you know, majority people are completely above board and want, you know, are yes, just looking course. for what they're entitled to. But you need to remember why you got the invalidity pension in the first place because again the reasons you have there's certain criteria in relation to carers allowance that you have to qualify for and one of those would be i suppose to be reasonably fit to look after the person that you're caring for so just just have a think about that. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, the second question then I worked in England for 15 years and I see that I'm entitled to a part UK pension. It's not a lot of money. I've not worked here for 30 years, uh, been at home with the kids, um haven't left the home. The question is would I get some pension here uh, also through my husband who is working and that's in from Sandra. Uh, today there's quite a, quite a bit in that. Yeah, and I suppose I suppose, hi, Sandra. The the answer is again possibly, but it depends on many things. So it might be that your husband might qualify for, or rather, you might qualify for a means-tested adult dependent allowance when your husband re- eventually reaches the state pension age. But that'll take into consideration any other income, possibly such as your U- small UK pension, investments in your name, etc. Um, so it might be that you could avail or apply for the adult dependent allowance on the back of your husband's state pension. Or maybe you're entitled to the non-contributory pension, again, means-tested, um, you know, what that you can look at when you get to state pension age. Or it may be that you're entitled to a contributory state pension, OK? Mm. Because it might be, just reading into what you've said here, it might have been that you're entitled to certain benefits or stamp or credit for the years that you were at home with your children. So we've mentioned this before. Mm. So this will be picked up automatically by the Department um, of of Social Welfare, I suppose the pension section, when they're assessing what you're entitled to because they'll know the years that they paid out child benefit to you. So it may well be that you're entitled to that. So that falls in under the home caring period that we mentioned before. I think that came into play in around 1994. So um, normally it's for a maximum of 20 years. Okay, mm. um, and it's about normally if we're talking about children, it's when, say, for example, your youngest child was born in 1994 and your eldest child was born in 2000, then it might be that you can 
claim for the first 12 years for the youngest, but also for a maximum of 12 years for the other child. Okay. But again, to a maximum of 20 years. Right. Again, the whip the web or the bog that is social welfare but there may be some credits there I suppose other considerations um, for this individual I don't know if the whole buyback of the UK stamp is going to work um, by virtue of the fact that she's been at home um, for that period, that's something she's going to have to look into in her mm. own steam. But um, the the pro rata EU pension, if you've worked in Ireland uh, and also in one or more EU states, your social insurance contributions from each EU state will be added to your I- Irish PRSI contributions to help you qualify for a social welfare payment such as the state pension. That might help her. So it might be mm. eventually with a combination of some home care while she was looking after her children and also the uh, EU, or the, sorry, her UK stamp, she may be entitled to the state, <coughs> excuse me, to the state pension. Right. Um, we're, we're not sure as well, and I know that you're, you're, you're wondering about this too, whether she worked before she went to Yeah, to, absolutely. To well. And, and yeah. again... I, I don't know if, yeah. because why that's important is, is the date of entry into the system, yes. okay. into the Irish system. Right. Um, and sometimes when you're looking at the averaging, that can catch people, okay? Mm. So um, that, that I suppose, what I'm trying to say here is there may be entitlement under the years where she was looking after children. She also needs to look at the UK pension contri- uh, contributions mm. and it w- may well be that eventually her Irish state pension is based on a combination of both of those things. And Francis, who would sort of, like, that? that that's a very complex web. That, who would sort of look through, is it somebody like yourself? No, no, I would say that this is really, first of all, she needs to be aware of what she has, okay? Mm. I would say also do your own research because some Sometimes you can just end up in front of the wrong doctor, shall we say, mm. um, when you're you're heading into a department. But I mean, in in my experience, the the PSI records team are very very good and they're very swift and they deal with things very mm. uh, quickly. So I would say go into your own intro office and if it's a thing that you have a difficulty, speak to your local TD or, mm. or county councillor. And um, they may be able to help you as well. Citizens Advice, another great outlet for people to to check. That's for sure, yeah. Uh, Another one for you, Francis. Uh, I'm a pensioner in in his 70. Yeah. Uh, My daughter, who has uh, three school-going children, uh, I does uh, doing all of my shopping and washing and cleaning as my mobility is not great at times. Would she be able to claim carers allowance for me? She's not on any other allowance. And if so, how do you go about it? So that's a pensioner in his 70s, I suppose. So again, I would say possibly. Sounds like to me that she should try anyway. You know, why not? She's looking after her elderly father who has disability um, issues or mobility issues. And he's very dependent on his daughter Mm. by the sounds of it. So I would say yes. But, you know, just remember... The CARES allowance is, means, is a means-tested payment and the main sources of income included are uh, cash income, capital income from savings. Um, so I would say um, if you were married in a civil partnership or cohabiting, this is for the carer now, the applicant. Mm, yes. The first 750 of your combined total weekly income is not taken into account when you're looking at the CARES allowance. 
And by the way, the carer, um, the carer's allowance to apply for it, you must be over 18 and pass a means test. And that's where I'm coming in, where I was getting into mm. savings and that there. So you must be able to provide full t- time care to a person who is not uh, living in a hospital or a convalescent home. Um, you can't be employed or self-employed um but you for more than 18 and a half hours a week. So there is some flexibility there. So the person you're caring for must be age 16 or over um, and so incapacitated as to require full time care and attention or under 16 and qualify for domicile where you'd qualify for the domiciliary care allowance. So apply how and where there's a care report that you need to complete. OK, mm. Um, again, I would say go to your either, you know, some people use their own local TD or yeah, um, yeah. county councillor or whatever it be. But again, you could go into citizens advice if you don't want to go directly into the Department of Social Protection. But I, I would say go and speak to them. It would sound to me, again, I'm not the one t- making the judgment here. Mm, of course, I, yes, I, You know, course. for everyone that's looking after everyone, it's a good job that I'm not adjudicating because <laughs> I would say people are looking after people, but there's a very strict process around this. There, there, there is indeed. I'm just, I just see that the daughter has three children. Is, it, is children's allowance taken into um, consideration where means testing is concerned? That, Fran, I think don't think it is. Sorry yeah. now, and I'll have to double-check that. No, I, I should have warned you about yeah, that, but no. it just occurred and to me there. Do you know what? Again, as you can see with an awful lot of these questions, some they vary. So some uh, particular things where you're applying, it doesn't apply. Mm. But then on the other hand, if you were going for this particular um, allowance, it does apply. Oh, yeah. So that's, again... The yeah, complex web we situation. weave Absolutely, and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another question for you, Francis. Good morning. Will you ask Francis about the decision made for carers' pension contributions considered only if you cared for somebody for 20 years or more? It seems unfair to all those that care or cared for loved ones under that time frame and uh, lose pension contributions. Yeah. yeah um, so, I again, this is something that's coming in from January of 24, where carers, and I think this is maybe what this person um, is is alluding to, basically, January 24 on, carers must have 20 years minimum, okay, uh, which they can, which can be then used towards the state pension only. So that's really important. Um, and you can only use the credits when you have 20 years. Wow. So... You know, for people <clears throat> that maybe had, um, you know, less than that, I, where does that leave them? I, yeah, I, I don't mean, if you know. Had Nineteen years. Yeah, you, you I know. mean, if we go back to the credits and the homemakers scheme, you know, that I mentioned to the, there earlier in relation to somebody who has children at home, then surely something is still going to be done under that scheme in relation to people that are looking after children at home, people that were caring for somebody else for less than the 20 years, possibly. And again, Brian, I think this is something that's going to flesh out as we go forward. Yes. But based on what I've read, from January 24 on, carers must have 20 years minimum, which can be used towards the state pension only. OK? And they can only use those credits when they have 20 years. 
Seems seems some, unfair to me. Something we'll be revisiting, yeah, seems, I, I seems, suspect. Seems very unfair to me. Okay, and anything else where that is concerned? Any other schemes there that we should be talking about, Francis? No. And we've covered everything there, have we? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. It's, it's again... The yeah. web that is the homemaker's credit and the carer's credit. All right. Uh, another question for you. If grandparents, I, I think you touched on this a couple of times during the years, if grandparents give €6,000 to a grandchild, is this money considered as income if applying for the Susie grant? So the short answer here is yes. Oh. Okay. So um, I would say to somebody that, you know, first of all, the recipient of the gift needs to be aware how this is going to affect them okay yes you as the donor no but you you obviously want to do good with this money and you're trying to help somebody out so i think the recipient needs to be aware um so it may be like that they need to look at the susie eligibility criteria and it's quite clear um i suppose i had a quick look what income is included in reckonable income gift and inheritance is is clearly stated so Again, it gets into whose income is included. It really depends on your what they call your applicant class, as in, you know, whether it's a dependent student, a mature student, <clears throat> or an inter- independent student. Yes. But I would say, you know, I think the person that you're giving the gift to, if they're in receipt of the Susie Grant, needs to go in and have a look at how it could affect them. Right. Are there ways around that, though? <laughs> <laughs> she, oh, she's smiling and laughing at me now. So I suppose, look, uh, you need to use your head here. Right. If it's a thing uh, that, you know, somebody goes in and they look at the eligibility criteria and somebody, they're lucky enough to have somebody who wants to give them a gift, 6,000 is the maximum, mm. right? It doesn't mean that it has to be 6,000. Right. It could be to a lesser amount. Right. But or it could over be for a period a lo- of time. Exactly. Oh, it right. could be okay. for a longer period of time. Right. So. I see. All right, then. Another question for you. I have three children, all with autism. I'm on a DCA for them and I get the yearly grant and also get carers for two of them. They're age 7, 10 and 12. Uh, will I get €400 Euro each as I'm on the DCA for three of them? And will I get the €100 Euro each for them as their qualified children on my payment? Can you just, can you untangle that for me now, first of all, Francis? So I'm going to say sorry, I definitely can't answer this. And I, I just want you to be fair because everyone that, you know, texts in or takes the time to text or email in, I want this person to know that we've we've received um, their message but I definitely can't answer this this is something where you're going to have to go and speak to either you know, Department of Social Welfare Assistance Advice, local county councillor or TD and look I'm sorry that's just and best to look to Mm. you that that's something that's I suppose more in depth Yes. If that makes sense. All right, and I so. don't want to steer you wrong, but I, I do want you to know that we heard you and that we received your question. Right, and thank you for that as well. How do you claim back mortgage interest relief or is it done automatically, says another So now I'm coming back into my zone, yes. as they say. No, you have to claim it, and that's really important. Um, <clears throat> but you can't do this until January 24. Uh, as you work, remember what this relief is about, Okay. It's about the difference in the interest that you paid in the year 2022 versus the difference in the interest that you paid in 2023. So you're not going to be able to determine that until 2023 is done. So the early stage you can look at this is 20 January 
24th. So you're going to have to go in via my revenue, okay, mm-hmm. at the earliest point in 2024, and you're going to have to upload, I would su- suggest, your 2022 statement and your 2023 statement, and then you'll be able to claim 20% max of the difference between the interest that you paid in 2022 on your mortgage and the interest that you paid in 2023 okay. on your mortgage yes. to a maximum of €1,250. Your mortgage can be no um, less than €80,000 and no more than €500,000. So again, it's not an automatic Okay, let's be really clear here. You have to go in via my revenue and claim this. The maximum you can claim is one two five zero, the um, which is tw- or twenty percent of the difference between the interest you paid in twenty twenty two and the interest you paid in twenty twenty three. But the responsibility and the onus is upon you to claim this back. They're saying this is a temporary measure, so they're saying, oh yeah, this is you know, we're going to wrap this up. This is only happening for the year twenty twenty three. You know, again, why is this happening? It's on the increase in interest rates. You might note the other day that the European Central Bank didn't increase interest rates. I was reading an article there over the weekend. Inflation is starting to cool. So the expectation is that interest rates may actually start to drop mid to late next year. And if that's the case, then this won't be as big an issue. So that's why they're saying it's a temporary relief. This may not happen again for the year 2024. All oh, right, uh, interesting. <clears throat> the next query is more of a statement, I think, than than a question, Francis, but just as you say, to acknowledge it mm. from, from a listener, could you please ask why the carers don't get the fuel allowance? And we deal with this on the programme all of the time. This uh, listener goes on to say, if you're caring for somebody at home, you need uh, heat just as much as anybody else in social welfare. It's the only payment that doesn't get the fuel allowance. And again, look, I'm sorry, I really can't answer this. You know, again, I hope you get from me. I'm hugely sympathetic. Um, but that's a social welfare issue. But, you know, I would say, again, speak to um, Citizens Advice, speak to your own local social welfare mm. office. Um, you know, again, I actually looked up and I, you know, sometimes it's very interesting questions um, through the Oireachtas and debates mm. and they're worth looking at. And I saw something there in July 23 where um, Heather Humphreys was saying, you know, in certain circumstances, people um, who are on the carer's allowance may indeed get the fuel allowance. But again, you need to look into that and you need to speak to, um, you know, make your own uh, investigations, I suppose, into this and, and see. And... You know, hmm. there's certain criteria again. Sometimes, if you don't tick those boxes, that's it. You're at the end of the road. On yes, it. but as you say, the offices of the TDs often can help absolutely with, greatly yeah. with with information uh, as well. Is the Christmas bonus being taxed this year, Francis? I would say possibly because it's income, hmm. right? Um, so again, that sometimes people don't. This is their only income, so they won't have any tax mm. to pay. But if they have other income, obviously, as everybody knows, social welfare can't be taxed, so it can't be taxed to source. So it might be that if you have some other income and you are in the net of social of income tax, then you might see a small deduction from your other income. Um, so again. Any USC and um, PRSI is not payable on social welfare payments, but possibly income taxes. So 
I, I'm again possibly. All right, I would possibly. say. Don't okay. know what this other person is earning. All right, a couple of other things then. Um, pension, for example, yeah. uh, Francis. Today's uh, the thirty first. Yeah. You're talking about Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking this is the last day for a paye person. Okay, to make um, an AVC contribution, but I would say, is it even too late as we speak? Because there's there's been a change this year, and we mentioned this last month, and I think even the month before, in the way that um, they have to upload information. Um, You know, I suppose it's probably too late for a PAYE person. It's highly, highly unlikely they're going to get in the door of anywhere to do a payment into a pension before the close of business today and have it uploaded onto revenue. But for all of the other people that are on the Ross system and they've got up till the 15th of November. So again, just shouting out there, anyone that's looking at pensions, you know, for the Ross system, you need, you're in the last days of it, I would say, if we're looking at working days, so you need to get going. All right. And the finance bill, we're looking forward to all the detail of that. Yeah, suppose, the, yeah. and I suppose it, it's out. The devil is in the finer detail. Um, the help to buy scheme. Um, you know, really, this is just underpinning and pulling into to law the um, eventual law, the, the outlines of the budget, but also there's some finer detail, you know, just looking at it again, the help to buy scheme. They're now saying that that's going to re- run till the end of 2025. The vacant home tax, just in case people miss that, that is that tax now will be five times the equivalent of the local property tax. So that was a significant change. Um, And the rent tax credit, again, just shouting out to the people or parents possibly, even that have children that are in digs, in accommodations, in Limericks or Waterfords or whatever, Mm. um, they can now claim the rent-a-room relief, okay? The rent relief as well, for that child before it was oh they had to be in student accommodation or yes. or a set situation they can now also claim in the case of uh, rent a room accommodation and digs so that's really important because that's money back in parents pockets oh, right. which is yeah. well needed well, well needed <laughs> when you indeed. have children little, in college a little too late for me but uh, <laughs> yeah. there, there you go also in the papers today talk of pension mm. as well uh, Francis and uh, the the age limit I suppose for pension on the exam yeah, um, yeah I suppose they're from January again they're saying that people can wait and claim their pension up to the age of 70 mm. there's calls here that this actually be increased uh, to 75 mm. look but you get more money then yeah you, you would you? so yeah. Again, I don't know. I'm not overly convinced. Maybe a bird in the hand and all of that. Like, mm. nobody knows the moment nor the hour, right? Um, I would say, again, looking at the detail, if you if you die, your pension is gone with you, um, bar that mm. you've a, a spouse, and the spouse only gets the, you know, one state, say they're in receipt of the full state pension, they will probably, and again, I'm, I haven't even gone into this detail. Say you de- deferred your pension. Say you should have got three hundred and ten euros a week instead of mm. the two sixty five because you deferred it. In the event of your death, I would imagine if your spouse was just getting the flat two sixty five, mm. that they might go up to the three ten that you should have got. Again, 
That's something we'll... But we don't know that. We don't know. So Uh again, I'm kind of thinking, okay, where this is coming from is some people have substantial pension pots. And when, you know, say the likes of me is looking at them, I'm saying, hold on a minute, you know, be careful about turning all the taps on. Anyone that deals with me, you'll know I'm always on Mm. about taps. If you turn all the taps of your income on in one go and you don't have to, sometimes you're running yourself into tax situation. Okay, because obviously you pay tax on on income. Um, Now, again, I think that's really going to be down to individuals. But, you know, deferring your pension, uh, you're not claiming anything on it. You know, I don't know. know. Maybe maybe what you're going to do is spend all your private pension on all the things that you wanted to do. And hey, that's not a bad plan either. And work away as well. As long as you have a plan. As long as you have a plan. You need to have a plan. Well, I have a plan. I'm getting out when I'm 60. (laughs) What is it, 66 now, is it? 66, yeah. 66, even though Sinn Féin are saying they're going to bring that back to 65. So there you go. We'll see what happens where that is. We'll wait and see. With bated breath. If people want to talk to you, Francis, or your team, how can they do that? Yeah, no problem. They can ring the office 052-612-9487 or contact us via our website, www.foh.ie or email me, foh at foh.ie. All right. Uh, always great to see you, Francis. Thank Thanks you. very happy much. Happy Halloween, indeed. everyone. <laughs> Many happy returns. We'll take a break. We're back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie. I'm not entirely sure if there's a Halloween version of Bah Humbug, but uh, Mick says, I hate Halloween. I even hated it when I was a kid. Eat to their own and make sure I won't be around. On the other hand, I love Christmas, says Mick. But I love this one. Ian from Barry, he says, I refuse to negotiate with terrorists, masked invaders, holding my doorstep hostage and demanding sweets. It's trespassing and fraud and terrorism. I'll be contacting the local constabulary of if our house is targeted, yet again this year. So that's into us uh, on social media this morning. You can text on WhatsApp 083 311 You can email tip today at tipfm.com. Time now for global politics and as usual, delighted to be joined by Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. And uh, good to see you today. Um, I suppose we're fixated at the moment on the Middle East and there's little talk of uh, Ukraine, but of course that continues to fester. That continues. It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? The news agenda, one item can die dominate so quickly it just moves on exactly Uh, yet the war in Ukraine continues to continues to fester continues to grind on we're at the stage now where it seems to be that both sides are caught in this kind of a stalemate in the east of the country east of the Dnipro River Russian forces uh have just about secured their lines. The much-vaunted Ukrainian counter-offensive hasn't really materialised. They were, I think, a lot of optimism during the summer that Ukraine would make substantial gains in this counter-offensive, but it hasn't transpired that way. And instead, they've been left kind of uh, grounded in their own positions. It's but you make some very interesting points. You're saying the cities such as Kiev, uh, back functioning, back to... A normality, I suppose. A degree of normality. And it's amazing how, how this can happen in wartime because, we, you know, Ukraine is under martial law at the moment. Uh, you have soldiers, active reservists being called up, yes. a little bit like Israel is. But you have cities such as Kiev and Kharkiv, many of which are back functioning, back 
with a semblance of normal life has returned. It is in the east of the country, though, that the, the conflict is concentrated primarily now. And that is, I think, where it will lie for the foreseeable future. So as the rest of Ukraine kind of moves on, you have this odd position where half the country is kind of uh, developing and, and functioning and operating like a normal society. The other half is is stuck, stuck in this quagmire, this wartime quagmire, kind of frozen in time, frozen in conflict. Um, but the Israel-Hamas war, how is that impacting, though, on Ukraine? And I'm thinking in terms of support, Thomas, is it, or is it impacting? On well, it, that's precisely it. We have unequivocal Western support for Israel uh, in that in that context. I think it has taken, because it has taken the limelight away from Ukraine mm. to a certain extent, I, I think that will probably diminish... Uh, diminish the significance of Vladimir Zelensky and his his efforts to secure to secure vital weapons supplies to secure financing and we must we must remember financing is a massive element of this from a Ukrainian perspective they need money to rebuild their economy just like Israel will need money uh, to rebuild mm. after this uh, to rebuild Gaza Ukraine needs money to finance and keep its keep its budgetary ship afloat essentially so there is I think there is agreement there's unanimous agreement between western leaders that support for Ukraine should be unequivocal and without limits unconditional but at the same time when their focus is so concentrated on the Middle East, it's very hard to see how they can sustain this level of support and sustain it into the future. And it will have to be sustained into the longer term rather than the short term, because this looks like it is a long-term battle in Ukraine at the moment. And uh, what about the Wagner Group? I mean, we're hearing very little about the Wagner Group. They've, they've effectively disappeared since the, the death of Yevgeny Prigozhin. Oh. They have effectively kind of faded away, dissipated. Now, they're still present. Uh, there are still Wagner troops there. There are some of them housed in Belarus under President Alexander Lukashenko. He has kind of a cohort uh, operating and training and living there, but very little significance otherwise. They're, they're not playing a significant role. The Wagner Group, though, it has to be remembered, are a multinational organisation. They have operations across Africa, as course, as, as we know. Uh, they still seem to be operating there. No, no real senior military figure seems to have stepped up and filled the to void. Lead, to lead them, essentially. Yeah, is that yeah. It? yeah. Fill that void left by Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, and I think that probably suits Vladimir Putin. I think the Wagner Group, towards the the end of Prigogin's lifespan was becoming somewhat of a headache for Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, somewhat of a hindrance to him. Um, and mm. I think he may be somewhat relieved at this point that their significance isn't, that they are not as, as significant in the conflict. Interesting. Let us move to uh, China then, and particularly to that Belt and Road Initiative. Would you just fill us in on that? Yeah, this is a fascinating. For people who aren't familiar with it, China a couple of years ago, it's a decade ago now, 2013, launched what is known as the Belt and Road Initiative. And what it is, is a series of of trade networks, essentially, stretching across the world from east to west, a little bit like we had the Great Silk Road in in historical times, we were that great merchant trade, yes. trade mm. uh, which extended across Eurasia, across the Eurasian landmass. China is now attempting to emulate that on a modern scale. It's put its own modern slant in it, so there are shipping lanes, there are, there are aircraft lanes, there are, are land-based routes, uh, 
and it's effectively it's it's a foreign policy experiment. So what is it's it doing, to compete with the West? It's to compete with the West, but what it's also doing is to gain influence over over the West in certain respects. How does it do this? It does this by something called debt trap diplomacy, which is a very interesting concept, whereby it it invests. Billions, in some cases, millions, billions of uh, of of dollars, we'll say, or of money, uh, into specific infrastructural projects in various different countries. These countries, which might be impoverished, which might be underdeveloped, are happy to accept them, are happy to mm. to embrace the newfound investment. But there's a catch: they are now beholden to China. They are now forced to. Uh, uh, forced to abide by China's wishes and they're effectively in a in a debt trap mm. with the Chinese which allows the Chinese to exert influence over them. Uh, so it's a very... And uh, how many years is this? Uh, about 10 years? It's about it? a decade. About it's about a decade. decade. And it, has it come to fruition? I mean, has this worked, I suppose? Not it? to the extent that President Xi Jinping, I think, first envisaged. Yes. I think it hasn't been quite as successful... In, in elements, elements of it have been a success. Elements, you know, China has invested huge infrastructural projects. We mentioned last week uh, some uh, the city of Colombo uh, in Sri Lanka was uh, on the verge yes. of a huge infrastructural development there. There have been other, um, um, other developments like that. It has also boosted, I suppose, its, its significance or its its reach in places like the South China Sea, like around Taiwan and places like that, where China would traditionally be seen as the dominant political player. So it is, it is there in those parts. But I don't think it has, it has prospered to the extent that our, uh, Xi Jinping first envisaged. I think he saw... He saw. He thought it may be far more lucrative, far more mm. far-reaching, and far more, uh, and possibly to have turned some countries, I guess, from from the West. Uh, has that been successful? Precisely. Yeah. I I don't think it's been because yeah. of the Belt and Road Initiative. I think I think countries are looking more to China. I think they're certainly moving and gravitating more towards the East, uh, particularly when it comes to the countries of the global South. However, I'm not sure that's because of the Belt and Road Initiative. I think that's more a result of the injustices they might feel. Uh, you know, they look at places like the war in Ukraine, now the war in Israel and Gaza, and wonder why they haven't received a, a similar level of support when there's atrocities occurring in their own countries. So they're inclined to look to countries, to China, for help. China is trying to forge a reputation as a mediator in certain respects, as a uh, as somebody who comes in, as a country who comes in and resolves these crises uh, and does its best to mediate and broker peace deals. Uh, and I think that is that is part of the reason that there is kind of a, a, an outpouring, have been an outpouring of support for China in recent times. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, we have our own issues in the West, God knows, but would we want a Chinese-led world order. Well that is, it's slowly it's slowly moving in that direction and that is the frightening prospect. I don't think we would. I think we have to trust in Western values. I mean we've Western liberal democracy is is a fundamental set of values. The Chinese model is a very different way of looking at the world. It's a very different prism through which you look at uh, global affairs and governance. It is uh, an oppressive country, an authoritarian regime and it's a completely different worldview. So when you have this juxtaposition between East and West, you talk about America and China, the new, two new superpowers fighting for global supremacy, and it's a very interesting one. But China will only grow in significance. 
uh, as the years go on. Its population is its population has stagnated to a certain extent. Yes. It does have troubles there, but it's, its, it's economy. It's elderly, uh, a very elderly population. It's a very elderly yeah. population, yeah. and that's despite a one that's because of that one-child mm, policy, yeah. notorious one-child policy introduced some years ago. But its economy is still continuing to grow. It is the largest economy on the planet. Uh, it will continue to develop. It will continue to develop diplomatically. Uh, and as China becomes an even more increasingly influential diplomatic player, the US will struggle to match it in terms of its dominance in that sphere. So it's a really interesting rivalry that's taking place here. We have other countries getting in on the act. India is there too. Yeah, India is a country yeah. which is rising rapidly. Its population, its economy, everything about it. Narendra Modi is there leading leading its surge. Uh, hmm. Leading its surge. And I suppose their advantages will be much younger population. As Precisely. Well. Yeah. Precisely. A much younger and I think more vibrant population and a population that has far greater productivity levels yeah. because of its youth. Uh, so India is another major player there. The rivalry between India and China is another dynamic to this, another interesting dynamic. Uh, there is a rivalry that exists there. There are disputes over territory, things like that. Uh, and I think it's a rivalry that will persist into the foreseeable future. Uh, but as far as mm. China is concerned, this Belt and Road Initiative hasn't maybe yielded the, the success that Xi Jinping first thought, but it's still proved influential. It is still allowing them to exert influence over global affairs. Isn't it fascinating to watch, though? It really, it yeah, really is. Yeah, it really yeah, is. Yeah, it's yeah. an amazing power play, I yeah. think, between the major nations here. And, and uh, imagine we had that entire conversation without mentioning Russia. And, of course, the Russian dynamic there is very interesting. Absolutely, too, it, absolutely. Uh, we ask you to have a look at a historic figure for us every week. And this is one that fascinates me. It's yeah. Pope John Paul I. Yeah. Okay, would you share with us? The, I mean, it, it. I think of Pope John Paul I, prior to ever reading into him, I think of him as this... I have an image in my head of this shady figure, this kind of behind-the-scenes dark operator that was suddenly, you know, suddenly popped into the Vatican and was dead 30 days later, effectively. And that's exactly what's happened to a certain extent. He did die within uh, within little over a month mm. of his papacy mm. being called. But it turns out that he was a far different figure. Some referred to him as the smiling pope. Yes. Uh, yeah. He was a man of... A man of inherent kindness, compassion. He didn't, wa he didn't want. To be he didn't want. It. He was humble. Yeah. He he decided to he decided to accept the honor because he felt it would be a, a, a an insult were he were he not to take on the role. But he didn't want to be pope in the first place. He was the last Italian pope that we've had. Mm. Of course, we've had Pope John Paul, a Polish man, uh, Pope Benedict, a German, and Pope, Arge pope Francis, an Argentinian, in the year since. So he was the last Italian pope that we've had. But this very kind and compassionate figure is what comes mm. across in the literature, comes across in the reading. But, but of, of course, course, the backdrop to his papacy was corruption, particularly where the Vatican Bank was concerned. Particularly where the Vatican Bank was concerned. And that is, I think, the root of many of the conspiracy theories surrounding his death. There were corruption allegations surrounding the Vatican Bank that various uh, various cardinals were involved in, various senior figures in the church were involved in these financial scandals, financial imbroglios uh, that uh, that really threatened to, to sink the Vatican in certain respects. And it was his intervention in these scandals that, that prompted his assassination, inverted commas. Now, he, it is said he died in his sleep. Uh, he died, you know, on... 
he died by peaceful means by mm. natural causes mm. in his sleep obviously that is heavily disputed and we have a string of different conspiracy theories much of this much of which revolves around that Vatican bank scandal mm. well, uh, there was a mafia involvement supposedly as well supposedly yeah. and of yeah. course we have to remember Italy of the time you know was it was a place where the mafia had huge influence significant influence over over Italian affairs, over Vatican affairs. The Vatican itself was no stranger to corruption at the time. Uh, it had those problems. Maybe it's still no stranger to corruption since. People can make up their own minds on that, but it should mm. have been the 50, 35th day of his pontificate. He was found dead in his bed with reading material and a bedside lamp still lit. Tell me about, because this is something I didn't know about, tell us about the nephew or a guy who claims to be his nephew. What, what's the story there? Yeah, this was uh, this was a nephew of... Pope, Pope John Paul I, who, who claims to be a nephew. As, as you say there, another mysterious figure, uh, a shady kind of clandestine figure operated behind the scenes, behind the, uh, behind the covers, and was said mm. to be a nephew of Pope John Paul I. Now, Pope John Paul I, I think, disputed this mm. uh, and wasn't sure of it himself. Um, but it just goes to show... But did he claim he was part of a poisoning of the Pope? It's precisely, precisely. Yeah. Uh, and this poisoning obviously led to his death eventually. Um, wow. at, you know, and so it's it's a real... Whenever I think of it, I think it's a real... It, it, it's a harbinger back to the, the, the old, the Catholic Church of old, whereby you had these mysteries. Yes. Uh, we're locked in mystery and scandal and intrigue. In the Middle Ages, particularly. In the Middle Ages, Ages yeah, in yeah, particular. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we had a time back throughout history when we had two popes. You know, when we had one pope in Avignon in France and the other in the Vatican yes. in Rome. Uh, there was times of corruption and scandal in the church. And I think this is kind of a, a throwback almost to those times, to that era. Uh, this kind of modern day fascinating pope. story though and there's uh, Yallop's book as you say from from yeah. the, the, the 1980s which is an incredible read as well uh, as usual of course we're, we're running out of time but let me ask you the question that's on everybody's lips uh, who is Mike Johnson? Mike Johnson indeed yeah you new, new speaker of the US House yeah. of Representatives think of him as the new Nancy Pelosi except right. he's a Republican so he's, a spe- he's now the speaker of the House of Representatives which is the third most senior figure in the mm. US political where, where did he I, I mean I hadn't heard of he him he just emerged from lower emerged yeah. from some ranch in Louisiana where he where he serves as, as congressman for Irish diplomats have been have been concerned. They they seem to have no no idea who he is, no idea where he emerged from. But he has come from effectively nowhere to take on this highly significant role, this position of prestige within US politics, third in line to the presidency. And it remains to be seen now how he will do because he has a very much a divided Republican Party, which he presides over, and a divided House of Representatives between the Republicans mm. and the Democrats. So it's a real... But he's a Trump man, isn't he? He's a Trump man. Yeah. He has, he's the allied. He has Trump's support. He has Trump's unequivocal support, which will obviously give him major backing as we head into kind of a crucial period in the lead-up to the... Uh, to the presidential election, so it will be very interesting to see how he plays his cards in the months uh, in the months to come. It's going to be very interesting to UK politics then, and to the UK Labour Party, and certainly what's happening in Israel is affecting the party. It certainly it? is, and we've had, of course, claims of anti-Semitism, claims sure. all these claims levelled against the Labour Party, particularly under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Keir Starmer has kind of rid the party of that reputation. He's managed to he's managed to clean things up. But he sees it. The, he, he spoke last week. He sees the Labour Party as fragile when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, you know it, that it could open up 
new divides or reopen mm. old divides in the party, uh, which which may damage it and may damage it in the eyes of the public. We have to remember the Labour are flying high in the polls here. Mm. They're still well ahead of the Conservatives. Rishi Sunak uh, is really struggling for popularity, particularly at a domestic level. And Keir Starmer is a shoe in to be the next Prime Minister. So he'll be hoping he can keep steering the ship steadily towards... Downing Street at this point. It's going to be a difficult one, though, because the Conservatives are so very obviously pro-Israel. Precisely. And, and, and to provide opposition to that, as you say, it's a, it's a thin line. It's be. a thin line. It's yeah. a thin line, and he needs to he needs to be shown to to show support for Israel, whilst I think acknowledging the sensitivity of the the issue for Gazan civilians and for the Palestinian situation. Because I mean. The two-state solution, which is, mm. is a far-off prospect now, seems to be still uh, the line which most Western leaders have, have invested themselves in. They want the existence of a Palestinian state beside an Israeli state. They want a peaceful coexistence. Now, that seems a prospect that is more Doesn't distant than ever. Even more people now are looking at a one-state solution. Really, I think so, I think so. Just finally, to, in terms of stuff to watch out for, Armenia as well, they're going to sign that peace yeah, deal? Yeah, they're on the verge of signing a peace deal with Azerbaijan. This is this conflict that has been festering and brewing in the South Caucasus, South Caucasus for, for many weeks now. They have finally come to an agreement and signed some sort of peace deal so that will issue a kind of a, a detente in the, in the relationship or in the, in the conflict. So hopefully, hopefully some manner of peace will come to the citizens of Nagorno-Karabakh that uh, stricken region in the South Caucasus. All right. Uh, Thomas, most interesting, fascinating as usual. Thanks very Thanks much Thanks, Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. That's uh, Thomas Conway there with a look at global politics. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie uh, Welcome along to the final hour of Tip Today. The free phone number is 1800 938 007. The text and WhatsApp is 083 311 and of course you can email tip today at tipfm.com. Now following my chat with Francis O'Hanlon in our financial uh, spot, uh, lots and lots of questions coming into us. We'll package them all together. We'll put them to Francis and uh, next time round she'll have a look at them. But some very interesting questions uh, in there. I sort of flummoxed uh, Frances a bit when I was asking her about child benefit and whether or not that's counted in means testing. Uh, she wasn't quite sure about it at the time. But one of her listeners says, Fran, child benefit doesn't count where a means test is a concern. So that's a, an interesting one. All right then, something completely different. Glad to be joined in the studio by Susan O'Donoghue. And Susan, you well know at this stage, a very established relationship mentor and co-creational psychotherapist. Good morning to you, Susan. And uh, how are you this morning? Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm getting over a head cold, so excuse me if my voice is a bit off today. But not uh, not well. in the least, I'm sure. And happy Halloween. Are you a Halloween person? More a Christmas person. Oh, are you? Yeah, okay, yeah, right. Yeah, Christmas was nice in my story. <laughs> always back to the story. It always goes back to the story, doesn't <laughs> it? Does, You're yeah. going to talk to us today about couples. Um, do, do you mean in a romantic sense? Or? Yeah, well, I suppose for me it comes up a lot around couples because the minute people hear that I practice relationship mentoring, automatically they think, oh, this is about couples in a romantic sense, right? Yes. 
But for me, uh, the relationship mentoring is about the relationship with yourself, number one, because that's what we bring to another, right? So it's always about the relationship with yourself first, because we're always in relationship. We're always in relationship with ourselves, because even the self-talk, talk, you know what I mean? Like whether we're saying, God, am I good enough? God, you know, I'm brilliant at this. How many times have we say that? Well, probably less than I'm mm. no good at this. Slightly less. Yeah, than, slightly yeah. less. But that kind of sense of we're always in a relationship with ourselves and how is it for us and what's going on for us and what are we doing? Now, when we go to a couple relationship, right, we have three relationships going on. We have the relationship I have with myself. I'm speaking with you here today, Fran. It's the relationship you have with yourself and then it's the relationship between us. Wow, does that make okay. sense? It does. So there's an yes. awful lot going on, isn't, isn't there? there just, yeah. yeah. You know? So how do you approach that? I mean, do you speak to the couple in front of you? Is that how you I, approach I would generally separate them out because what happens for me, I think, is sometimes they can come in and it can be kind of like a, like like you said before, a pint scoring yes, kind of thing. The war of the roses. Yeah, yes. you know, and they can be hoping that maybe I'll side with one or that. Mm. And it's never about that. It's always about what's coming up for you is important you know, mm. for the individual person because we are individual and staying separate from somebody else's behaviour is key, yeah, because their behaviour is 100% about them. Yeah, what they do say, feel and think, that's about them. It's created by them. So we create our feelings, we create our behaviour. Sure, they could come from nowhere else, only us. You know, it only makes sense. Yeah, but if you're at the receiving end of cruelty and stuff like that, that's no solace to you to know that the other no. person, of course, no. you know, have, have their issues. And I suppose when we talk about that in the sense of cruelty or abuse, or it's how is it now that yes. I'm okay? Or not that I'm okay, but that I allow this to happen. Where's my boundaries in all this? You know, now I don't think that that kind of behaviour should be allowed anyway, right? Mm, I think yeah. that there's that sh like there's no there's no need for it. The person who's being abused or being whatever it, that needs to be stopped immediately. But then we need to work on how is it that that has happened to you? Mm. You know what I mean? Where is it in your life that it was okay for that kind of behaviour? You know that it's okay to treat me like that, and that's the key. The key is to get underneath what's happening for you. What's happening for the other, if, if they're abusing you or if they're treating you badly or whatever, there needs to be boundaries in place around that. And hopefully there'll be someone there mature enough and conscious enough to go, listen, you know what I mean? This is not good and mm, whatever, yes. right? This needs to stop. And generally we see that a lot with children and bullying and all that kind mm. of stuff. We'd be hopeful that there'd be an adult around, a, a conscious adult that would say, look, enough already and someone to step in and safeguard the child. So I suppose when we think about it, right, we're coming from our story the whole time. That's the bottom line, right? And our feelings are coming from our story. So how we feel is based on our values, on our beliefs, on what we were brought up with and what we witnessed. So our parents would have been, say, there's different holding worlds, right? There's the holding world of the womb and then there's the holding world of family. So when you the think... The holding world. The holding world. What I oh, mean yeah. about that is that's where you're held, yeah? Yes. So even now, like, it's been proven over and over again that even when a woman's pregnant... Her mood and what happens to her when she's pregnant has an impact on the child, right, emotionally. So, like, I I know from my own experience being pregnant when I'd put on certain types of music, you know what I mean? You'd feel the activity or you'd feel, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, obviously, how we feel impacts the child, you know. And in some cultures, they are so safeguarding of the mother during pregnancy, right? It's kind of lost in our generation, I think. And as we moved on from our culture, it's just changed. So I think even the womb world has a huge impact on children. It has a huge impact on us. And I would have delved into that in my own, say, when I was back to college, that would have been part of it, to look at how was my mother when she was pregnant with me. 
and how was life for her? All that stuff impacts us, and that's one of the biggest times of growth is in the most world. Most of us would never take that into account. I mean, it's from from yeah. we we might hark back and say, oh, when I was a kid, I had a rough time, but but being the the pregnancy. Yeah, even the pregnancy makes a difference, Amazing. the womb world. And then the family, of course, wow. you come into the family then of origin, mm. right? And you're looking at your parents then, and if they have baggage brought with them, which most of us do, I've never met anyone without a few bags yet, you know, mm. they're going to pass on a few things to us and they're going to be defensive and protective in some of their behaviours. So what that's going to do for us is we're going to look at that and go, oh, this is what the world is like. It's either very threatening or very safe. And for lots of us, it can be threatening. You know, you have to behave this way if you're a boy. You have to behave this way if you're a girl. You have to behave this way if you're in this culture or this religion or this society. You know, there's certain boundaries and there's certain things that you you dare not cross sometimes, mm. you know. And I think for us, then, we bring all that with us. That's our that's all our stuff then, right? Yes. We bring all that with us. And if we don't get the opportunity to reflect and explore what our behaviours, like what kind of behaviours are coming up for us that we're acting out of instead of, I suppose, that we're reacting to people instead of responding to people, that we don't take time to think about, oh my goodness, I wonder why I did that now. Do you know, like sometimes you do something, you go, oh my God, I'm so sorry I did that. Mm, mm. You know, even with our kids, I suppose it comes up a lot because I suppose with kids, we think that we're supposed to be there to tell them what to do, right? Um, And I suppose for me, it's about, um, like, don't get me wrong, when my lads were small, I hadn't this this work done on myself. But for me now, it's about, um, I suppose, encouraging our kids and giving them the opportunity to explore themselves. Yeah, they have to get their knocks. They have to get their everything. We didn't have that as children. We were told that this is it. This is the way it is. This is what you have to do end of. So we bring all that stuff with us now into relationships, right? So quite wisely then, right, we'll attract people who are going to touch in to some of that sore stuff so it'll come back up for us. So we'll have to look at it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we're amazing, right? I know I say it a lot, but we're absolutely genius. Yeah, because this is often subconscious. Oh, it's all, it's all like, there's always a knowing there, right? Yes. But it's either conscious or unconscious. And the unconscious stuff is all the stuff that we react out of that, like, you know, you get your back up or you get defensive around stuff or, you know, someone says something to you like, I could say to you, you know, you could say something to me and I could say, well, Fran, sure you said that and why did you, you know, that kind of defensive behaviour, that's getting your back up. Instead of saying, I'm separate from this person now, yeah? Hmm. What's coming up for me is about me and for me because I'm creating this now, right? How is it that I'm getting so upset around what this person has now just said to me? What have they touched into in me now? But your people could do that, Susan. They wouldn't need to come to you at all, no, would they? they wouldn't, you know? No, <laughs> I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> no, but I mean, that that is the ideal. If you could analyse how you're feeling and why you're feeling yeah. the way If you, you could go inwards instead of yes. outwards. Because a lot of time, like, we project stuff onto other people because it's too threatening. Because when we were small, like, who could say to their parent, um, excuse me now, don't speak like that to me because it really upsets me. Mm-hmm. I get really upset when you talk to me. Like, like I know I'd have been... You'd have yeah, been, you know, murdered. Yeah, well, you'd have been yeah. told, jog on, you know. Yeah. So I think that it's really important um, now that we're adults to check in with ourselves and see how it is for us, yeah? And lots of us, like, will stay in relationships, we'll stay in jobs, we'll stay in situations where we're not happy, mm. you know? And that's because it's too threatening like the devil you know is better than the devil course, you don't sometimes, yeah. so it's too threatening to step outside. But Susan, your your work with couples, would the couple not to be not need to be at the very same place emotionally 
to change, if you know what I mean. See, I think behaviour leads behaviour, right? So if one person in the relationship, right, can look inwards and check out what's going on for me here now. And if you can stay separate from the other's behaviour, that's Mm. the key, right, is to stay separate and know that if they say something that's really mean, yeah, that's a reflection of what's going on inside for them. It's coming from them, it's about them and for them. Mm. So if someone says to you, you really annoy me, I really hate you, Mm. I don't want to be with you anymore, Chances are, if you dig deep enough, now only they know what's really going on inside for them, right? But we're always revealing what's going on inside for us by the way we talk, by uh, our actions, by our behaviours. So if they say that to you, right, there's something way deeper going on there. You know, it's not just that they hate you. Because Mm. if I was in a really good place, I'd never turn around to anybody and say I hate you. If I feel solid in myself and I'm in a good place and, you know, I'm happy, you know, I feel this sense of joy... Why would I ever? Why would you say that? Yeah. But I mean, if somebody says that, what does that indicate to you as a psychotherapist? Is it that they hate themselves? Well, there's something going on there, you know, and like we reveal ourselves in the words we use, right? But only the person really knows. I can reflect back to them. I'm wondering, you know, what the hate is, you know, or, you know, in that sense of, oh, I hear that you say that you hate this person or that you hate me. And I'm just wondering, how is that for you? And is there anything I can support you with? That's what I'd say as a therapist. Now, if you said that to someone who you're in a couple of relationship with, they'd probably tell you where to go, yes. especially if they're in that st- state of being defensive, yeah? So a lot of times, you know, we need to get ourselves in that position first because we can't support another if we don't have it for ourselves. That's the bottom line, right? So I think even if one couple, one person in the couple relationship uh, starts to work on themselves, yeah? Starts to have a look at, oh my God, how is this for me? What's coming up for me? Without judgment and without criticism and gets a safe place to be that they can explore it, yeah? I think that that can change the whole dynamic. Yes. Because if I come into you and I'm in a bad form, right, and I start acting out, right, and mm. saying to you, oh, you're, it's, your, it's your problem, you're the reason why I didn't enjoy my weekend, blah, 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 blah. Now, if you retaliate and come back at me, right, mm. There's going to be no communication at all. It's gone, isn't it? Yes, no you're, you're into of, a shouting match. Yeah, you're into a shout. No one hears yeah. anybody. Everything's gone. Yeah. But if I can stay solid in myself and I can just listen, yes, and I can know that what you say is not about me, then I'm not personalising it. It's not becoming... Um, I'm not taking it on as my stuff then. I know it's about you. But you're not advocating that you would tolerate bad behaviour no, either are you? No. you so you, you have your, your own boundaries, boundaries. Yes. you need your boundaries okay. and if it gets whatever your boundary is for you because we'll all have different boundaries and like if you're not in a position to stay there and listen to that person then you say I hear what you're saying I need to remove myself or whatever it is for you yeah it might be just that or I can't, I'm sorry now I, can't, I, I've, I feel really attacked here I need to go you know, mm. whatever it is for you. But if you can hold that sense of self in it and know that what they say is about them and for them and what's coming up for me now is about me and for me, mm. that's the key to it all. That's the key to... It's a lot easier now <laughs> say it than do it. Of course it is, of yeah. course it is. But it would take the hurt, I suppose, out of some It of takes the... the hurt out of it because now I know who's really hurting is the person who's saying it. Yes, yeah, so then it brings that sense of compassion into it. So now I'm not going, oh my God, I'm going to, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to get back at him now for that, or you know what I mean? Yeah, that sense yeah. of retaliation, or because what that is, then it's all my projector, all my um, protectors coming up, and protectors I had to use quite wisely when I was small, yeah, to protect myself. Whether I was the one who backed into the corner and said nothing and just hid, or whether I was the one who lashed out. Like we'll all have different ways of working mm, in the world, yeah. and. Um, like whatever my protector is, 
even just to recognise that that's what I'm doing is the start of it. Even just to say, oh my God, this person is shouting at me now. What's coming up for me? How is it feeling for me? Am I okay in all this? What do I need to do around it for myself? Do I need just to leave? Do you know, do I need to walk out the door? Do I need to protect myself in that sense? And sometimes our old protectors will come up and maybe if it was my protector to shout back at somebody, maybe I'll do that. And that's okay too, because those protectors were created by us and for us. They're our friends, yeah? Mm. We put them in place ourselves to protect us on our journey through life. It's fascinating. What comes up? Is there a common denominator among couples that you would be dealing with in terms of the issues, I suppose, Susan? I would say communication. Is that lack the Lack of communication. One, I would say lack of clear, direct um, communication where people are saying what their needs are, saying um, how they feel, but speaking from that place of, I need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff goes on between the couple dynamic. Now, any there's loads of different types of couples, but like here, I suppose we're talking about the more romantic type. Mm-hmm. But I suppose any couple relationship, when you think about it, that dynamic of you should meet my needs mm-hmm. or I'm going to meet all your needs, like that comes up hugely because realistically, I'm responsible for my own needs. I can make a request. Mm-hmm. Can you support me in this or could you help me with this? But if you say no, it's the honour the other person is not in a place to, you know, support you in that need. So now the responsibility is mine to take care of my own needs and not to take care of another's needs. And that's huge for couples. But a lot of relationships are based on some sort of dependency. Though, yeah, and that's know. measurement, isn't it? That's a neediness. Yeah. Yeah, but that's not... That's not a um, unconditional love, then, is it? That's that. There's conditions attached yes, yeah. to me yeah, being you, with you. You look after me. Yeah, know, or so I look after you. Look after you. And that yeah. sense of both are like I always think of it as the same kind, but just different sides yes, of it, of course, right? Yeah. Because and that's kind of what couples attract because we're that amazing. Like I, I know I always say I'm blown away by how creative and genius we are to create all these behaviors when we're in the womb and out of the womb and, you know, tiny little children that we can create all these to protect us from what we have just come into. You know, not saying that it's all bad and it's all because we all have lovely things that we remember too as kids. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the ones we really need to work on is the ones that are hard for us. The ones that really um, impact us. Like those, um, you know, uh, dependent on other people for love. Mm. You know, that neediness, depend on other people to take care of us you know, or needing to take care of somebody else because if I don't have control, sure, what's going to happen then? You know, that sense of I need to control things. Yeah, Mm -hmm. of course. And the difference, the gender difference then in terms of what people are looking at or looking for out of a relationship. I mean, is it an obvious difference? I think we're all looking for love and belonging and unconditional love. Is that it? That's the bottom line. Like, who doesn't want to be loved unconditionally? Just take me for who I am without having to do anything or be anything or say anything. Like, I suppose so much of our world now is tied up in what you do. Yeah. And so many uh, people are addicted to work. Yeah. Yeah, Because that's because we're seeing through what we do, you know, or achievement or power or, you know. So, I mean, just to be seen for you without having to do do anything is kind of it's 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 kind of very scarce, I would say. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not something that you come across too often. It's not, but I mean, somebody said this to me recently, and, and you know, when I thought about it in terms of, you know, the core of who you are, and and you begin to peel back the thing of what you do, you know, who you're with, um, you know, what you drive, what you... Um, it's very hard to peel all that back and find out what the real person is, is it not? 
the real person is always there, though. Yeah, the real person is always present. But sometimes you can't even identify it because you've added so many layers. Yeah, and that's okay because that's where you need to be. Yeah. Yeah, because those layers needed to be added. It's not like anyone comes out of the womb and goes, do you know what, I'm going to cover up here now because... Just in case, that we cover up for reasons. Yes. Yeah, we cover up because we need to. And I think that peeling the layers back can be so painful, yeah? Mm. It can be very uncomfortable, very painful. But I think to stay in that hidden place with all those layers is more painful. I think it's a life unlived. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? So uh, that to me is is all important because pulling off them layers, they can stick, they can be painful, they can hurt, they can get to the core of it. Um, your suffering's going to come up, what happened to you as a child. Yeah. A lot of that stuff we've pushed down because it's too painful to bring up. And, you know, that's where you need the safety. That's where you need somebody who's going to be non-judgmental and know that even if your behaviour, say... I know that in society we frown upon certain behaviours, right? Mm. Like, so even if your behaviour is frowned upon, say, if drug use or alcohol, there's certain things, that, you know, society goes, oh, no, no, no. If if you do something nice or something, you know, bad happens to you, it has to be something that's acceptable. Do you mm. know what I'm yes, saying? So, yeah. like, no matter what the behaviour is, there's a reason behind it. We didn't just make these up for no reason. Of course. What occurred to me, though, when when I found out you were going to talk to us about couples today, by the time somebody gets to you, I mean, that's a huge step in itself to get get people to come to you, a a couple to agree. Okay, we're going to go and speak to Susan. And even what I find is generally I'd get one. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. The other might follow later on, but I generally get one. And what happens is when I start to model conscious behaviour when I start to have a look at my own behaviours and say oh god now we're going back into this fight again we're going back into the you know the tennis match of over and back Mm. and over and back Mm. and nothing gets resolved what do I need to do around it for myself now right Mm. because if I keep playing tennis with somebody it's never going to get resolved we'll just keep playing tennis forever so what do I need to do to end the game yeah Mm. because I don't want to be playing games I want to be real in who I am and I want to be real with somebody who I want to love Mm. you know and but is it possible that you get to the stage that you can recognise what needs to happen to make yourself better, but the other person just, they're not on that journey or they can't get to that place. Is that something that, that happens? Yeah, that? I hope my good husband's not listening now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to personalise <laughs> No, it's, it's but, brilliant. But, but you know what I mean, yeah. like that somebody just is not. Yeah, well, I think for me, right... When I started on this, I got really excited a couple of years in. I was thinking, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know what I mean? I'm starting to find out it doesn't hurt as much anymore when stuff comes up. And I was thinking, oh, my God, my poor husband is going to be left behind now. Right? (laughs) Crazy stuff. Anyway, there was a reason for that, too, I suppose. I had a fear of losing him, yeah? yeah? But it's amazing because when you start to model behavior, it rubs off on everybody. It really does, because behaviour follows right. behaviour. In a positive fashion. In a, whether it's negative or whether it's positive. If I have children and I'm abusive or I'm neglectful or I'm harsh or I'm whatever, they grow up thinking that's the world, right? If you meet someone along the way who's not harsh, who's gentle, who's kind, who loves you for who you are, doesn't expect conditions around it, it, it changes the scene. It's like, uh, I think I spoke before about like, you know, when you go out there in the world and you see a different perspective, it's kind of it's kind of like the same thing. You see that there's different ways to live. You see that there's different cultures. It's the same thing with behaviours. When we start to understand our behaviour and connect our feelings to our behaviour back to our story and we get an understanding of, sure, that's why I'm doing that. 
Should, that's why I get so upset when mm. so-and-so says that to me. That's why it really hurts me when somebody talks about achievement or when somebody talks about um, sadness or when somebody talks, whatever it is for you, because we're all different and we'll all have different hurts, yeah? And we'll all, even in the same family, we'll all respond differently and react differently to different situations to all our parents like I think it's amazing because when you sit at a funeral and you talk to your siblings about your parents yeah we all saw them totally different that's fascinating isn't it it is yeah like because we're unique yeah? yeah we have our own mindset we have our own whatever we're going to see things differently we might see similar traits but there'll be definitely things we'll go really is that what you thought you know, because we think differently, don't we? And we, we feel differently. Yeah. What you do, I think, is fascinating. I mean, re- really, really. I love I, it. I always enjoy talking to you as well. Uh, Susan, if people want to talk to you, um, how can they do that? No problem. It's uh, my phone number is 086 3676 256. And it's info at emotionalwellbeing.ie. All right. Great to see you, Zonal. Thanks, Thanks very friend. much. Indeed, Thanks. Susan. We'll take a break. Back with more. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Hi, you're welcome back to Tip Today. John Connors from Bursley wrote a well-received book on the life of Sean Hogan of Doc Long's uh, Rescue Fame, which was published in uh, 2019. Now, in the intervening years, the author has been quietly studying and researching into the life of Hogan's comrade, the great Dan Breen. Now, uh, John joins me in studio. Good morning to you, John. And to begin with, congratulations to you because this is an incredible piece of work. Uh, thanks, Fran, and I appreciate that. Uh, people thought I've gone missing for the last number of years, but <laughs> I've been quietly nibbling away at different places and gathered my research, and now it's yeah. coming to fruition. And what, what a piece of research. You, you did hesitate, John, to write the story. Why? I did, Fran, because I, I felt it was enough written. You know, we went through the archives, we went through the pension files, we went through the newspaper archives, military statements, biographies, autobiographies, and I, I just said, what more can be written? You know, what can be what can be added to it? Now, I didn't kind of really set out to do this, only I, I submitted to a little bit of, uh, I suppose, um, gentle persuasion. And um, I, I finally consented to it. But in the middle, in the middle of it all, Fran, I just felt like abandoning the whole project because I, I wasn't making any real progress, you know. Um, and it, there's just something that always stuck in my mind about a book I gave to a, a, an uncle of mine. Mm. And, uh, you know, after two weeks, I went back and said, well, well, Sean, what do you think of that? He said, got to love this. But sure, he said, I, I, read it all, I read all that in other books. So I did what anybody said that's about to, to me. say that. Well, there's no way, there's no way they could say that about this book because I, I think it's incredible. But where does it leave his memoir, My Fight for Irish Freedom, John? Uh, I sum up his memoir and his second statement to the Bureau of Military History like this. Um, he didn't write either of them. Uh, Chrissy Doherty, uh, Seamus Doherty wrote, um, wrote um, the, the, the book. Mm. Um, I would believe the father Colin Kill Conway, Clamelman, that wrote uh, the the second uh, statement to the Bureau of Military History. Mm. Now, I'm, I'm fairly certain of that, but but of course I'm sure about uh, Kitty Doherty. Yes, and I'm fairly certain about the. the, the and the, and again, yeah. this will surprise a lot of people yeah. too. You know, but I go further than that. I don't think he actually read them either. Leave alone writing them, because surely. He would have made some effort, you know, to correct, to correct you know, yeah. you know, stuff that's blatantly wrong, you know, and 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 then, you know, I, I projected an image of a man, 
that that didn't exist. The myth. The, the myth. myth. That that's the myth. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's that's the, the you know that's part of the title of my book. You know, the myth behind the man. Mm. So, you, you know, so, so I, I believe then what happened is you know that a public perception was created. Mm. You know, the hero was created, and you know, we mm. temporary people we like our heroes. Of course, you know. yes. But he did perpetrate that himself too, didn't he? Oh, he certainly you didn't. Uh, he didn't discourage. Yeah, it. yeah. He did not discourage it. You know, and you know, in his life, in his later life, he he, you know, and and consequently, Fran, an image of Dan Breen has filtered down into public perception that's been adopted by both his his admirers and his detractors alike. Mm. That I believe, and that my book, I, I believe, will reveal is very far from the truth. So, uh, the the revelation in the book, as far as I can see from it, correct me if I'm wrong, he, he's a much more complex man than, than we might have given him credit for. Complex, uh, contradictory, uh, controversial when associated him, and certainly colourful. Mm. Um, perhaps a degree of doctor on the stage, you know, and uh, like I said, that, that image created then had to live up to that, you know, mm. and not only could the man be contradictory, but he could be very contradictory in the course of one day. Yes, yeah. You know, so... And again, friend, maybe this is not unusual. Like, um, I approach history from this from this um, sense. Like, when I began this, I suppose I would say maybe... I didn't have maybe the most charged view of Dan Brian. Mm, I mm. felt like his book, you know, was written to the exclusion of, of other people. Yes, you yeah, know, you could say yeah. that, you could. You know, when I began to research, I got to like the man I did. But... Um, you know, life itself, you know, life in general does not happen at the extremes. You know, not mm. all of life. Mm. Like like we say in, in sport, it's played in the middle third. Yes. And that's where most of life happens. And that's where most of Dan Breen's life happened. You know, so what has happened is this. And this, this, this is something, I suppose, that, you know... I often spoke to a friend about, you know, my memories of 1966 and the commemoration mm. of the Ryzen, the insatiable desire for heroes, yes. you know. And then, you know, no shortage of candidates willing to step up at that pedestal. Yes. You know, this is the country we wanted at the yes. time. Uh, we, we're looking at it differently now, thank God. Uh, we look at, but, but with all of these things, you know, it is easy to demonise your opponent and it is easy to sanctify the person that's not. But there is a ground that I search for, and that's that territory, which I call understanding, to attach understanding to individuals, what they've done, their motivations, you know. And I find that, I find that a, a more uh, joyful adventure than the simplicity of condemnation or whatever, you of, know. Of or, course, or, yeah. So, other, so many, as I say, we're only going to scrape the surface today on this because the book, there's so much in, in the book. A couple of surprises for me. He, did, he wasn't at all fond of Irish America. In fact, he had very little time for Irish America. Very little time for Irish America. Uh, strangely enough, though, in 1929, when, you know, after losing his seat and yeah, being yeah. rejected by the voters at Tipperary, his first port of call was, was America. Was America, yeah. Again, the contradictions. Uh, yes, ran. but he, he thought they supported the Brits as far as he was concerned and oh, yes. they, they played no part in, in the War of Independence. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And, you know, we say, oh, the Paris Peace Conference. Yeah, and, yeah. Which, of course, goes to show another side that people don't suspect or don't maybe wish to acknowledge, like, those views are educated views. You know, um, like, um, England was my enemy, um, America was the friend of my enemy. But uh, it, it was, you know, like Woodrow Wilson and the Paris Peace Conference, you know, that, that helped him to, 
that's education to come to those conclusions. Yes. And he was, he was pretty adamant about that. And, of course, um, uh, so adamant about it, was not too willing to to um, change his mind to on that. His mind on it, indeed. Um, Salahid, we have to talk about Salahid, because, again, yeah. I mean, you know, the shooting of the policeman, was that premeditated? Yeah. Uh, were, were they just collateral damage, as they might say yeah. nowadays? But, again, two very different... You know, yeah. views from Breen on that. Yes, yeah. In my fight for Irish freedom, they were brave Irishmen too. Yes. Uh, in the subsequent statements, with the statements, uh, you know, they were, you know, it was premeditated. We wanted to start a war. Yeah. Like, I'm very sceptical about this thing. We wanted to start a war, you know. Um, like, when did when did that period of uh, of trouble become known as a war? Retrospectively, yes. Now, uh, of course, to that war, Franda said, "Dear all Ireland, free." Yeah. And uh, you know, it wouldn't be uh, go amiss, like you know, for somebody to say, "Like I was the one who initiated I was the one that." Who started that, yes. You know, yeah. and, no, but but are you, you're skeptical, though, of the notion that the guys the, the, yeah. sat down and decided we have to go and we'll kill these two, and therefore yeah. that will kick things yeah, up. Yeah, I'm very. Skeptical. You're skeptical about that. I'm very skeptical. About that, like there are other people at Salahibeg that also give statements that, that would contradict that. Yes. Tim Crow, for example, said that his mission was to uh, mind, you know, guard whatever prisoners were taken. Uh, uh, Seamus Roberts gave a similar statement, you know, but um, you know, in later life he went on and he gave, you know, a pretty brutish, uh, mm. you know, pretty brutish rhetoric about that, you know, like I put it in the context, like of of uh, I look at it this way, Fran. Like, Salahibeg happened in 20, on 21st of January 1919. When was the next significant thing to happen? It was May with the rescue of Hogan. Yes. Anything that happened yeah. in what was, retrospectively, the War of Independence in the, in the intervening period happened in North Tipperary. So, uh, like, if, if, if it was to begin a war, they were pretty slow getting off the blocks to, 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 to propagate that war. You know, so I think what happens, what happened is this, and this generally happens in life. You know, uh, a firearm is discharged. You know, inexperienced people, panic ensues. Mm. You know, and it was all over in minutes. Mm. And mm. to you know, probably the first, not probably certainly the first and outside of Seamus Robinson, just any of those men saw somebody uh, dead. Mm. You know, they were involved in that, into taking a life, you know, for the first time. So, you know, retrospectively then, you know, the stories are created. And, you know, where do, where lies the truth? But I would believe, like, killing two policemen would not start a war. It might... Uh, the, the season of explosives might uh, add to an arsenal that might facilitate us at a later date. But the actual killing of the policeman is, itself... So, you, you know, where lies the truth, Fran, we don't know. You also speak about, the, well, from his point of view, um, the absence of recognition of the IRA military campaign yes. in 1919. Yes. And, and, and that is factual, isn't it? That's, fa that's yeah. factual. Uh, they went to um, uh, Dublin and uh, they were offered safe passage to America yeah. by Mulcahy. And this is something that rankled with Brian all his life. Yeah. And he actually had traded harsh words with de Valera about this, he did, uh, when, he, when he printed his book, you know, and uh, when the book was printed, uh, uh, I'd say, and, uh, you know, and he said like, that General Headquarters were not supportive of our, of our efforts. Now, de Valera, of course, being the politician, contested that, and there was a little bit of to and fro on the independent. And, uh, 
Mm. And uh, it, it, was, it was settled... Uh, well, Kitty Doherty, his bi- his biographer, uh, she put it nicely. She said, she said, De Valere agreed to settle the matter. He said, he said, from his point of view, he was right. From Tambrine's point of view, he was right. Yes. So, uh, pr- pragmatism, frankly, I suppose, that would uh, that would be a hallmark of both men's career th- throughout their life. Yeah, uh, a couple of interesting things I picked up on uh, as well, John. I mean, he's wound. He was he was wounded considerably over the years, wasn't yeah. he? There was no one. There was no one wounded more than Dan Breen in the War yeah. of Independence. You know, he was w- yeah. wounded at Ashtown seriously and, and at Knock Long. And in the book, you considered the toll that took on him physically, but yeah. also mentally. Also mentally. You know, dominated his life, you know. And when he went to America, when he went to America, you know, he got treatment there. Then the whole sag began about getting compensation for that treatment when he came home. And, of course, that, you know, took on a life of its own, it did. But... Um, you know, he was, and in 1961, uh, he, the general election, he contested, it was last time contested mm. election, and he did not canvass. And um, he um, sent a, a letter, you know, to the, the, the papers at Tipperary, and uh, he had his index, the index figure of his right hand was amputated. You know, but I was a bit skeptical about this, Fran. Because uh, what would the index finger of his right hand be? Only the finger uh, that pulled the, the trigger of the revolver that laid many a fictitious black and tan low. Yes, yeah. But uh, it was true. It was true. You know. So he did. And you know, and he was. He, he had a mm. row with um, uh, Willem O'Brien outside mm. Hayes' Hotel in, in Torlis, you know, and, and he wrote to a friend of his, Tom Ford, a member of the Labour Party. O'Brien was a member of the Labour Party. And he didn't want to be falling out with any of these fellas, he didn't. You know, mm. Dan Breen was an amicable kind of man. He, you know, he, he liked friendships and he, he appreciated good friendships. But uh, he wrote to Ford, you know, to, could, he, could he settle this thing? He said... Uh, uh, I was after taking dope. That was a painkiller he was taking. He referred to it as dope. Yes. He, said, he, said, he said, and when I take dope, he says, I'm so contrary, I'd even fight with myself. <laughs> so, so, but but yeah, you know, yeah, these yeah. were issues of his... Of th- course, these were issues yeah. that dominated And I know him. we're jumping back and forth there, but what I, the other thing I found very interesting that he said that, you know, within Fear and the Fall... He, he he had very few friends. He had a lot of it, and and particularly I was taken with the story about Michael Davern. Oh yes, yes, yes. What yeah. I told before that was very interesting was his uh, in in his biography, uh, uh, Cormac Brannock. You mm, know mm. The, the man who instilled that spirit of nationalism. Yes. He taught us a version of history, and you know in nineteen forty four. His teacher. Already. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Brannock was uh, in Dublin, uh, chairman of the. The, the INTO, mm. Fianna Fáil TD, but he was a comrade for Doc now, he was Charlie Welch, and uh, Charlie Welch, um, uh, 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 an Irish schoolmaster, uh, speaks Irish and drinks Irish whiskey, but more than useless. <laughs> um, very damning. Very, very, very uh, damning. And, and concisely so. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the yeah. to and fro with, with Davros, so interesting. And I'm just wondering, you know, like, like, what did Davron do? Or maybe contest who would head the well, poll in South Tipperary? That's what it was. But, but it, yeah. the, the demnity was. Oh, my God. Was, yeah. And I just wonder was, was, was Michael Davron aware of this even? <laughs> but, but, but uh, you know, these were things, friend, that, you know, like that with John Nash and the landscape fair, which I've written, written about too pretty extensively. These were things that dominated his life. And, and, and you know, from his writings, actually overwhelmed him. You know what? Uh, you know, and do you put that down to that he was emotionally damaged over the years? That these became obsessive almost with Yes, d- d- yeah, yeah. D- these yeah. were, you know, and um, 
And then, Fran, you know, again, you know, coming from that background, and this is something I've studied quite a bit, you know, like, nobody walks away from debt and conflict and mm, war killing. unaffected, yes, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and someone like Dan Breen, like, a countryman, like you probably see there, like in the pages, Fran, his love of nature, mm, yeah, you know, yeah. he, he was so concerned in the winter of '46 that the birds would starve, yeah, you know, that I he know. wanted the family to cook more potatoes yeah. to feed the birds. You know, a man like that loves life, and you can't love life without love, loving human life, you know. So it must take a toll on it you, it does, yeah. And you see, as well, Fran, like with other instances, like you know. Like the friendship with Cosgrave, for example, yeah, yeah. Uh, he met a, a Stuart, an artist, Stuart Bellingham, who faced him at Ashton and 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 um, Fernside, and the, the, the two of them had a very nice uh, get together, and yeah. you know, so he wasn't the man as such that harvested uh, empty. Yeah. And you know, he was very quick to say, of course, he loved Michael Collins, but he hated the treaty. Yes, he loved yes, Collins. Though. Yes, you know, um, you know, I suppose one of like, whenever I would talk about Dan Breen in the future, like, I would always talk about his attitude towards the Civil War. Mm. Now, he hasted the treaty, and maybe if the rhetoric was torn down a little bit in the early days, mm. you know, maybe it would have, mm. it would have changed it. Now, having said that, Fran, uh, De Valera and the railway station in Torres and Cosgrave, railway station in Kilkenny, you know, Michael Collins in the debates in the door. Seamus Robinson, everyone could have torn down the rhetoric mm. a little bit, mm. but the civil war was his greatest. Um, uh, it was it was his greatest regret. Was it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and that was right up until, you know, up, up until his late, you know, his last years. You know. Was he an alcoholic, John? Um, now, the associates an alcoholic, I suppose, is somebody who drinks day and night. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose. I suppose an alcoholic is a person who's, you know, you know, drinking is unmanageable for mm. them. Drinking mm. is problematic. Now, I would say in this sense he was, that he had the foresight to remain abstinent from drink for, for long periods of time, mm. you know. And he could recognise the damage to do to him. And uh, he recognised that he couldn't function fully uh, and properly, you know, but he'd have consumed too much mm. alcohol. Now, the early 30s were a very volatile time in his life, and he was involved in a number of, um, you know, pretty um, extreme incidents, mm. you know, where guns were drawn and yeah. all of that. Now, uh, maybe you could argue too, like in all of those instances, Dan Breen's gun was, was not the only gun that was drawn. <laughs> but, but, I remember Des Hannafin telling me some amazing <laughs> yes. stories about that, but anyway, yeah. But, yeah. but, but the adoption of the revolver, I suppose, mm. the, the adoption of the threat of the revolver was was something he, he held dear. Um, that was a volatile time in his life, it was. Mm. I would say the gambling, Fran, was a bigger issue. Was it, yeah. I would. Yeah. And um, just I'd give you give you an example, just by, you know, to your listeners, just give a little context to what was going on at the time. Um, Pat McCartan, Dr. Pat McCartan, uh, who was, I suppose, in the, in the first de facto Minister for Foreign Affairs, himself and Dan Bream were very good friends. And in 1924, they intended to go to America to visit the old Fien and uh, McGarrity, John, John McGarrity. And McCartan um, um, wrote to McGarrity a letter of apology that he couldn't go, that himself and Dan Breen couldn't go, that uh, they backed the wrong horses. And 
Justin MacArthur said casually in the letter, in the letter he says, in one day, he says, we were down to the tune of £300. Now, in 1924, was a, a primary school teacher was earning £62 a year. Right. So that would give you a context too. Uh, you know. So it was. Uh, the man had absolutely no management of money uh, because... Outside of that, he was generous. He was generous to everyone. Mm. You know, he looked mm. after people. He did, and you know. And, so, uh, so. you know. would you clear up for me something? Was he an atheist, John? No, no. Uh, but, but certainly on Christmas Day of 1944, he wasn't because himself, his wife, and two children they went to mass in Rat Mines, and they said for the second mass. So, well, uh, of course, where family is concerned, you know, maybe that could be for a quiet life. Um, he wasn't an atheist. He wasn't. I, I, it was mischievous, it was. Mm, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he'd done an interview with the Ward magazine, the religious magazine, the Ward, and, uh, in 1968. And he told uh, whoever was interviewing him that he didn't believe in God, in an afterlife, in heaven, hell, or any, that kind of nonsense. That initiated a deluge of letters to his to nursing home in Kilcrowney, you know, pleading to go back to the faith of his fathers and all of that. And, and for some reason, he did. Had he even begun in the first place, I don't know. Mm, but for some yeah, reason, yeah. anyway, whatever. He said uh, a, a kindly old canon from uh, Blackrock College, uh, the parish of, I forget, that was a canon Redmond. Mm. He came and he heard his confession and Brian said, I didn't have much to tell him, which would be kind of a little bit of variance with the man who was supposed to have killed all these people. But anyway, he didn't have much to tell him that day. But um, he... Um, uh, he made the public that he had come back to the the, the, the Catholic faith, and of course, then the the, the letters of congratulation came. You know, and I had quite an amount of them. And you know, so was, was he playing people? Was he? Yeah. Now, if he wanted to, if he wanted to uh, broadcast his his supposedly atheism, like would he be better off to do it in the Irish Times than in <laughs> the World Magazine? <laughs> okay. But yeah, yeah. on his return to the to the good old faith, he. Um, He'd done an interview with the Evening Herald, with Desmond Rush of the Evening Herald, and Rush asked him, um, you know, now that you're back to the fate of your father and mother and the fate of dear old Ireland, uh, are you happy? He mm. said, I am, he said, but he said, I wasn't really unhappy before that either. So, <laughs> you know... Make, make I, I read, you will of that, yeah. yeah. I would read, you know, that, that yeah. mischievous... Um, and uh, uh, the other thing, started, taking credit for killings as well, yeah. and I'm thinking, have I the right name? Is it Potter? Was, was yes, it, yes. In, in, in North Tipperary, I think, uh, wasn't uh, it? Yeah. Care. Care, oh, yeah, well, yeah, that was yeah, a care, yeah. Potter, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, he took credit for that killing, yes. but, but yeah. I don't think he killed him. No, he? no, he had no... no you know, we talk about barrack attacks, we said the, the attack on the, the, the barracks in Hollyford, the attack on the barracks mm. in Drangan, and most... The, you know, in his biography, his his dear centre involved. Most of the evidence would say that he wasn't. Yeah. You know, but uh, I don't know. Like, you know, there are only all accounts. Like, and uh, you know. Yes. But, but again, was this building the myth? Yes. John? Was yes. that it? Yes. 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 Uh, one person's account is as fictitious as another. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Or, you know. And the passage of time can do these things. But 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 how is ever with the killing of Potter, the second statement to the Bureau of Military History immerses him in that in a central role. Now, the, the killing of Potter, uh, Potter was taken... taken just, just remind us about Potter, just in terms uh, yes, of who he was. Uh, Fran, uh, mm. He was a, a district inspector in, uh, mm. stationed in Cair, and uh, between Cair and Clahean, uh, an, uh, an ambush party, they, they took him prisoner. And he was, he was kept captive, and the plan was to exchange him for a, a man called Thomas Trainer, who was under sentence of death in Mount Jai Prison. 
So that did not happen. And when when uh, Trainer was exec- uh, executed, uh, Potter was taken out and shot. Now, in the meantime, his captives had got very fond of Potter because he was a nice, decent man, mm, you mm. know. And uh, his, his execution was a botched, botched affair. One of, the men, one of the men who went to kill him shot himself in his, his own tie, you know. Denny uh, Lacey, apparently... Uh, administered a coup de grace, uh, you know. So it wasn't something that was sh- showed anybody in glory. Mm, mm. But at that, that second statement, like, you know, it immerses Dan Brian centrally in that, which, and he wasn't there. Mm. Because in the Civil War, I would sum up Dan Breen's contribution, like this, Fran. He came late, he went home early. Yes. And, and that was one of the places where that happened. You know, the, the facts bear that out. You know? That's interesting. He, his family life then, he's related, and particularly, I suppose, his wife, Bridget, who... There's a whole story in that lady, just on her own. A whole story, not? Fran. A yeah. whole story. And, you know, I've dealt with it pretty... I think pretty comprehensively. And a whole pretty simple, sympathetically, Yes, too. I think you have, yeah. You understand yeah. it. You know, again, uh, unlike her husband, uh, Bridget Malone, married Dan Brian, uh, she was involved in 1916 yeah. with her sister. And... Uh, you know, pretty actively involved, and uh, you know, at the at the height of the conflict, you know, a month before the truce, a month before a truce that nobody thought would come, uh, they got married. So, you know, like would that spell dif- dysfunction before? Mm. You know, like I would imagine that on the, you know, the eleventh of June of nineteen, uh, nineteen twenty one, mm. that then. Dan Breen's prospects, you know, but you know, in front of a firing squad or at the end of a hangman's yeah, rope, yeah. but but yet they got married, did it? You know, and you know, did she get married to the, you know, to the illusion, to the was, myth or the man? Yeah, to the myth or the man. Yeah, and but you know, you know, as time went on, you know, you know, the marriage didn't work out. Um, you know, from he, he remained fond of her though, didn't he? And he, in fact, he advocated for her as the years went on. Um, no. Of course, where money matters were concerned, Fran, uh, Dan Breen had no enemies. Yes. You know, and she was pretty badly treated mm. in common with most women before the pensions board. Yeah. And, uh, and and she was a pretty active lady. You know, whatever faults or fails it might have had, she was a pretty active lady, and and herself and her sister, and very upright people in that struggle for independence mm. at that time. But. Uh, with um, uh, when she wasn't getting her just desserts from the pension board, you know, Dan, whatever whatever difficulties were there were put aside, and mm. he wrote a pretty stern letter. Uh, he wrote he wrote um, uh, to O'Sullivan, the, the the chairman of the pension board, wrote directly to him and to uh, George Tom O'Donnell, mm. and more or less uh, t- taught him like you know that uh, in no uncertain terms, in no uncertain yeah. terms, yeah, look after know. this woman, like yeah, look yeah, after yeah. this woman, yeah, I think. Can I ask you before before yeah. we wrap up? Because yeah. what was the biggest surprise for you in the research, John? Is that a, an unfair question? No, no. Uh, there was a lot. There was a lot of surprises. I think the love he had for his son and daughter. Right. You know. You know. Like, just in my own upbringing, friend. You know, my age, my vintage. Like, uh, just in my own house, for example. The only time I ever had maybe the love. The word love mentioned, but you know, my mother and father may say, but somebody loved drink, you know, something like that. You know, it wasn't, yes. people didn't talk. Yes, it wasn't you know? a personal thing. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but like, you know, he signed his letters, you know, to his son and daughter, all, all, all my love, daddy. Yes. You yeah. know, I thought it was something very, you know. And as you said, daddy, which is a yeah. very yeah. sort of a yes. cozy thing. Yes. Yeah. 
you know, like he's love of nature, yeah. you know, that he'd be feeding the birds, you know, and you know, you're concerned about him, you know, and you know, even in the nursing home, like, what's it, what's like, what's his a friend with the real Dan Breen's. Dan Breen, please stand up. Yeah. You know, and these were the surprises that came to me. Now, surprise in this sense, but in another sense, not fan, because um, the life that's given there for public consumption mm. is one thing, you yeah. know, but it's not life, it's not. And the other thing that surprised me, or really struck me more than surprised me, you know, at one stage he wrote a letter uh, to his son. Uh, he was in the Matter Hospital, and I can count all the cracks in the seal, and I can count can crown all the cracks in the wall. Nobody should live beyond 65. Life was miserable. Two weeks after the newspaper archives had been faced in Carmelis, uh, uh, the fall rally. So, so, yeah. like, mm. what was what was real and what was on the pub, what was on stage? Well, that's what makes the book up yeah. absolutely yeah. fantastic. The official launch is in Ballycastine. It's uh, November 10th, I November think. 10th. Is it? November yeah. 10th. And everybody's welcome along to... Every, to well, to that. Everybody welcome, Fran. Very final question. At the end of it all, John, did you like him? I started off, uh, Fran, like with my issues about him. I felt he he projected himself to the detriment of others or to the neglect mm. of others. Yeah. Writing the book, I got to like him at it. You know, maybe my own mad life, you know, throughout my years, maybe I could identify quite a bit with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, then when I went to proofreading and spelling and spell check and fellas arguing over where a comma should go and meeting deadlines, I, I think I nearly got to dislike him a bit again. But, um, yes. you know, but look, Fran, what I have there, you know, I, I hope it will... Um, I, I hope this, Fran. Like, for those who have used his name, to, to for nefarious purposes, yes. to 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 glorify bloodshed, to glorify the taking of human life, and his name has been used too much in that regard. I hope that the other side I will reveal, you know, his efforts around the civil war, his personal relationships, that yes. that's the Dan Breen that we should celebrate. And it's and called Dan Breen, the myth and the man. And very yeah. finally, because I'm I'm yeah. way over time as I said, but I I have to put this to you as well. Are you prepared for people to take you to task for some of what's in this book, John? Um, um. I hope, uh, uh, I, I hope a week after the the book is launched, that I'll be looking for a safe house in place. <laughs> in this sense, I hope that his detractors will say I wasn't half hard enough for him, right. and his admirers will say I was too hard on him. And if that happens, I feel I've done a good job. Well, I think you've done a great job because you managed to have a scholarly work extremely yeah. readable and well yeah. done to you, yeah. John. Thank Thanks you very much Thanks. indeed. Dan Breen, The Myth and the Man by John Connors, and that official launch on the 10th of November in lovely Ballycastine. Thanks very much indeed, John. That's it for me. Uh, Emma produced Ali looks after her content. Stephen is on the way with the Time Tunnel, and I will speak to you tomorrow. You look after yourselves, and happy Halloween. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.